saying good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening. Welcome to another live edition on this Sunday night, September 18th, 2022, of The Other Side of Midnight. That magical time between dusk and dawn when we kind of try to distill all the crazy stuff that's happening now 24-7 all over the world. In fact, probably, if we were places where we cannot see all over the solar system. And in fact, that's going to be the entry for the next three hours because we are gathered together to to um, praise and to salute on her way the final journey of the Queen. The state funeral at uh, Westminster Abbey begins in a few short hours, about, uh, I think, uh, two hours after the ending of the show, Mountain Time, if you tune to uh, the BBC or Sky News or MSNBC or CNN, or any of the networks, you know, they're going to be doing uh, pretty much continuous coverage uh, because the uh, funeral with something like 2,000 invited guests. Uh, if you look at item number one in Radio with Pictures, there is a um, rather remarkable view of the interior of uh Westminster Abbey. It's it's a stunning place. It's it is so fitting for this whole discussion, this backdrop of the royal family, the monarchy, the role of monarchies in the 22nd century, uh, their origins, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And a rather remarkable idea I had earlier in the week, and I actually ran it by my first guest tonight, uh, Stephen Bassett. And so, without further ado. Let me introduce Stephen. For those of you who are new to the show, Stephen Bassett is a political activist, disclosure advocate, and the executive director of the Paradigm Research Group, founded in 1996 to end a decades-long government-imposed embargo on the truth behind extraterrestrial presences related to a broad spectrum of the phenomena. He has spoken to audiences around the world about the implications of disclosure, the formal confirmation by heads of state, and that's going to be a key part of our discussion tonight, of an extraterrestrial presence engaging many, many decades, if not much longer, uh, the entire human race. So without further ado, Stephen Bassett, live from Washington, D.C., welcome to The Other Side of Midnight. Stephen? Yes, Richard, there it is midnight are. where you're at, but not, I mean, where I'm at, but not you, not you yet. <laughs> well, but we're on the East Coast, so, you know, time's You'll going. get there eventually. We will, we, like with New Year's, you know, we eventually wind up celebrating the New Year. Okay, when we last had a conversation, we had just, it was kind of after the one and only open hearing. There was yeah. a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. Uh, there have been some name changes of the Pentagon office devoted to UAPs slash UFOs. So what's the current status and where are we in terms of this disclosure process? I think I've got enough time to give a basic update here up to bring us current. Uh, I'm getting better at condensing it down into <laughs> to a limited amount of words, which is not easy. Um, here is here is the, the picture. Uh Starting in December of 2017, and then for the next three and a half years into spring of 2021, about three and a half years, uh, 
uh, we had probably an unprecedented level of engagement uh, of the issue across all media, uh, major developments, uh, witnesses coming forward. Uh, and this is primarily because of that amazing story in the New York Times, right? The New York Times triggers it, but then, of course, that just it, it expands the awareness of the issue and, and more coverage is happening. So about, I don't know, I think in my print media archive, I think I have nearly 3,000 articles that have been printed on the subject since uh, uh, December of 2017. It's an unprecedented level. And important articles, the stigma virtually fell away from the issue. Most of the skeptics pretty much went away and found other work. So there's a couple <laughs> that are still hanging out. Um, and there was, a, there was a lot, so there was a lot going on publicly, but it was also a lot going on privately behind the scenes. The effect of this very intense three and a half years resulted in the next phase, we'll call it phase two, of the what I call the end game of disclosure. And that is in the spring of uh, 2021, finally, after nearly uh, 75 years, the United States government decided to finally, formally, and openly engage this issue in the appropriate way. By the way, let me interrupt. That's some of the things that I do here. It is coincidentally the 75th anniversary of the U.S. Air Force. One of my well-known yeah, sure. uh, Air Force colleagues made sure that I wanted to mention that tonight, which, of course, I do. The transformation in 1947 from the U.S. Army Air Corps Air Force to the U.S. Air Force, the splitting off of a separate branch, I believe was the last time that a military service was split off from another one up until Trump split the Space Force off from the Air Force a couple of years ago. So it's the, right. it's the 70th anniversary of the U.S. Air Force. And by extraordinary coincidence, it's also the 75th anniversary of the CIA. Oh, it's a lot. of Sep 47 was a big year. Yep, big, big. The 71st well, anniversary of – Because it's 19.47. It's the I ritual. Cannot. I have no idea about that, but I do. I, do, I can count. And 47, 75 years ago, which was the 75th anniversary of CIA, 75th anniversary of the National Security Act, creation of the NSA, 75th anniversary, the beginning of the truth embargo, Roswell, and of course the 75th anniversary of the event. Well, itself. since you say you don't know about this stuff, let me give you another little data point. A few hours from now, there's going to be a major state funeral. The president's attending all kinds of heads of state, special guests, all that, for the departed queen. It's taking place in London on September 19th. It literally begins at 11 a.m. and ends at 47 before the hour, 19.47 for the departure of the queen from these mortal realms. And you think there's nothing to the ritual. We are bound by the ritual. I'm not a ritual guy. Dick, I'm, you know. I'm not either. I'm simply I'm just, reporting I'm just the facts. I was, I was, I was, I think I, I, I somehow joined the, uh, the key club, which is uh, somewhat connected the, ultimately to the Kiwanis, which is, you know, whatever, got thrown out of it. That was in my <laughs> senior year of high school. Look, let me just, let me just focus on the politics here. So starting in the spring of 2021, Finally, the U.S. government made the decision uh, 
for I think re- for logical reasons that it was time to finally engage the issue properly. Uh, Blue Book was not a proper engagement, I assure you. Uh, the two hearings they held in 66 and 68 were not proper engagement. They were for show. Uh, in fact, the government has gone to enormous lengths to not engage this issue, to pretend it doesn't Well, in 63, the Robertson CIA panel was for exactly. show. Well, well, no, that, no that, was a, that was a classified panel. We just found out about it later, and we discovered that uh, the, the key uh, point that the panel arrived at was the phenomenon didn't seem to be a threat, but the public's growing obsession was a big threat, and therefore they needed to make it all go away. In any event, we're talking about a very long time, from 1947 to uh, 2021. Seventy-four years go by, and finally they, have, they make this decision. Now, everything that had happened between 1947 and, 19, and to 2021 contributed to this decision. It wasn't just the breakthrough New York Times articles, which just stemmed from uh, some videos released and some other information being released to them, the emergence of this group of 10 individuals uh, who were the military intelligence complex as part of the organization and all that. That was very important, no question. Uh, but everything that came before that, the research of hundreds, if not thousands of people, the endless books and articles and journals and documentaries and interviews and reports and everything else, all of that, you pile it all up, and it results in the United States government finally doing the right thing 74 years after they got bodies and a crash vehicle not from this earth. Now, what's happened since 2021? Well, prior to the spring of 2021, there had been plenty of activity on the Hill, a lot of briefings going on private of members of Congress, certainly the members of the key committees like the House and Senate Intel, House and Senate Armed Services. Chris Mellon was a key factor there, a key player. Witnesses were brought up. It was all done sub rosa, basically, though some of the members referred to it and said, yeah, I got a briefing. That's their prerogative. But overall, it was simply not in play until finally they'd had enough information and had done their own inquiries and had searched their own souls and decided it's time to move on this. And the first person that really made a significant move beyond anything anybody had done previously, which includes Stephen Schiff and, and uh, uh, a few other members of Congress that have touched on it, is, of course, Marco Rubio. An interesting choice, but he makes mm. the first move with uh, language inserted into the 2021 Appropriations Bill or 20, yeah, 2021 Appropriations Bill. So this sets off the what we'll call the congressional engagement of the issue. Now, it could have stopped right there. It could have been that language could have been stripped out uh, and never passed. Uh, it could have been that the House wanted nothing to do with it, but that's not what happened. Uh, what happened is, is that language was included in the appropriation bill, the Intelligence Authorization Act. Uh, House language was put in by Gallego, and that language was passed in the 2020 appropriations bill which led to reportage requirements, including a report delivered in uh, June of 2021. Uh, and, yeah, the typical uh, 180 of, days. Uh, well, they, I guess it's typical, 180 days from the act, which put it in June. Again, they're, 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 this is appropriate, and it's also slow, and that's the way it always is. They're not, they're not being unduly slow. Well, I think it would Prior be called – I think the term will be measured. 
Okay, measured, slow, whatever. I mean, this is the way the government works, right? The legislation is slow. But you know, by the way, the legislation process on this is actually faster than many, many, many other legislative threads that are out there. So in fact, it's a very positive thing. And so we have – then language is then put in the 2022 appropriations bill, um, and then language has now been put in the 2023 appropriations bill. So the first two bills were passed with the language involved. They set up uh, a you know, group, a task force, or whatever the hell. They assigned this, this, these, these rules and regs. This is part uh, of the National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA. And the intelligence authorization component of it. And to give you how important this is, you see, when, when something is really important within the, the world of the Department of Defense, uh, as it addresses the issue in the context of dealing with the, 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 the Congress and getting money and all that kind of stuff, is acronyms start flying around like, like, uh, like uh, <laughs> uh, bees, right? And so – Everybody remembers – some of your people know that the ATIP program, which emerged in 2017 in December, uh, was actually a nickname for the original program, which was the OSAP. So the original program was Advanced Aerospace Weapon System Applications Program, OSAP, which eventually became nicknamed ATIP for any number of reasons. But it was a nickname. It wasn't like formal, but that's the name that was carried, and that's the name that was used – in the article, which created some confusion on the part of people in the Department of Defense because they didn't see that name listed on their list of programs. Hmm. But that, that, that was then, and people were confounded by that. Well, if that confounded them, how about this? Started to get into it formally. They set up, quote, the Unidentified Aerophenomena Task Force, the UAPTF, over at ONI. Office of Naval Intelligence. And then as the legislation changed and as the Department of Defense started to maneuver things around and assign this and assign that, they decided to change the name again to the Airborne Object Identification and Management Synchronization Group, right, (laughs) Uh, which is uh, AOIMSG, okay? Uh, And uh, and that is is, uh, uh, AMSOG. And then they have just changed, changed it again, yep. just in this last legislation. This is my favorite to the one, the All way. Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, Arrow. Now, it took them basically five acronyms to finally get something that was right. OSAP, are you kidding me? ATIP, oh, come on. That sounds like something you get at the you know, Outback Steakhouse. Mm-hmm. Unidentified Aero Phenomena Task Force, the UAPTF, the you puffed? No. <laughs> and then arrows, arrow, Airborne Object Identification Management, OMSOG, okay? All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, Arrow. Okay. I think they finally found it. I think we're going to go with that for a while. But when they start making up names and changing names, that shows you this is really important. Why? Because it reflects the jockeying going on within the Department of Defense as to who is going to do what. How many people you're going to get? How much money you're going to get? What's your what's your cat? What, what are your cats? What's your mission statement? And so that has been and that's, that happens over there all the time with all his programs. All right. Now I happen to know that they estimate there will be three thousand people working on the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office by early next year. Three thousand? That big enough? Yeah. Is that big enough? Wait, wait, wait. wait. For the people this is to cover 140 cases that they reported. At the last hearing? No, it's to cover the entire issue 
Okay. And everything right, that Congress is demanding from the DOD on this issue, all right, right. Uh, which they have now acknowledged is not only in our air, it is in space and it is underwater. One of the most important significant things that's happened in terms and of these changes. And it could be other dimensions, all domains. It, I, it, well, it, it, all domain does not in the law, in the in the in this legislation, does not refer to other dimensions yet. Uh, so I I'll invite people fine, go there if you want. But I'm I'm interested in what the government is is in writing about. Uh, so it's it's air, sea, and space. But the sea is extremely important mm-hmm. because uh, undersea unidentified undersea objects uh, are. Really a problem. Oh, they've been a big component of this from the beginning, just not acknowledged. Yeah, but not acknowledged. And one of the reasons they've not acknowledged – obviously, the government had to acknowledge UFOs, okay? UFOs have been around forever. They had to acknowledge them, though, again, they just put it off, put it off, put it off. Uh, and there don't seem to be a threat. Okay, fine. Undersea is different. Things that can travel under, under the sea, wow. And then you get, and then you start getting a potential interference with the entire submarine reality, which is essentially the, the core. Yeah, and not just really travel the, undersea, but travel at very, very high well, speeds. Oh yeah, exactly. Hundreds yeah, so of miles per hour. Seeing, they've been seeing things down there traveling a couple hundred miles an hour, which means they're not ours. Yeah, no, nope. right. And, and uh, but there's also, you know, but the, the ocean is filled with nuclear subs. Yep. All right, and so they could not acknowledge that. Because that really raises the, the potential for problems, but now they can because they have set the platform already to view this issue, at least from the standpoint of the DOD's task and mission statement, as well as the basis for hearings and legislative action on the basis of the, the clear potential national security threat. And once they establish that, it's okay to bring in the undersea component of that. Now, not, not a lot of journalists really jumped on that. And you haven't seen any articles yet. I should write something for the Hill. Maybe I will. Maybe they won't publish it. The point is, is that, is that uh, nobody's really brought up the fact. That, wait a minute. These things are down there, and we've got nuclear submarines down there. We're not talking about something flying over Nevada, or you know, over Norway or something. We're talking about undersea, hundreds of miles an hour, and there's Russian and and, and a Chinese and, and U.S. nuclear subs carrying 10, 12, 15, 14. Merved, in many cases, merved warheads. This is a big deal. They have opened that door, but the journalists haven't jumped on it yet because everything is happening so fast. You can't keep up with this. Well, they're all distracted why. by why did Trump take God knows how many 11,000 documents to Mar-a-Lago. They are distracted, and we are in unusual political circumstances, and we have another war, and this war is a little different than just about every other war because no war we have been in prior to this, and that includes Vietnam, it includes Iraq, it concerns Afghanistan, has had more of a nuclear, how would you say, component attached to Well, yeah, Putin every other week is threatening to use nukes. Yeah. Oh, oh, let me interrupt. There's another component which has just come up in the last couple of days, and I wanted Mm -hmm. to to ask, you know, run this by you. Are you aware of the mainstream astronomical reports of UFOs over the Ukrainian battle space? That is that is a a new uh, a bunch of articles that I'm just putting up on site right now. It's just another example of anything that turns up anywhere now is is a news news story it could be an odd looking cloud it could be maybe some drones it drones, could be anything drones, yeah. it gets covered 
And so, not surprisingly, except there are measurements at two separate stations, one in Kiev and the other to the east. And from the measurements, the motions do not correspond to any known aircraft. Yeah. yeah, the point I'm making is is that even relatively trivial stuff is now an article. I mean, I, I'm constantly – Yeah, but there were I, lots I of got, reports about UFOs over Vietnam, and not one made the major papers here in, in the States. Nothing state. like this. Nothing like this. Nothing like this. I, I you know, Believe me, there, there, there was some mentions of that, but tiny compared Very to what tiny. we're getting now. One the point two. I'm making is that the Ukraine stuff – is is not trivial and so it's really getting hit hard and what what that means is is that and this the government understands this is now everything that has a uap uh tint to it is going to be covered the entire world media is now committed that they're going to tell us about this which of course is what we forecast you and i and it's a good thing because of course it is the 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 biggest assistance to the government cover-up charade has been blasé lack of interest on the part of any serious journalists. That has well, now changed. Not, not exactly. There have been 20, 30, 40,000 articles written about UAP phenomena for the last 75 no, I'm years. T- yeah, but nothing, That's not, not lack not, of interest. But nothing has taken traction. Why not? No, no. It's not the reason it hasn't taken tra- well. It hasn't taken traction because the government's gone to extreme lengths to minimize the chances of it taking traction. The way the journalistic community has failed us is not by not paying attention. They, they've written thousands of articles about it, but by not challenging the government on the issue or doing deep investigation. Yeah, but wait, wait, wait. As someone who used to be, you know, Cronkite's left shoulder, right shoulder, whatever. The way we handled UFOs when I was at CBS, it was the kicker story at the end of the news, the ha-ha. That's not serious journalism. No No one has done serious journalism since 1947 on this. No, 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 no. no. Look, I'm somewhat of an obsessive-compulsive person. I got (laughs) OCD. By the way, let me me interrupt again. Can you stay over because our – Next guest is not answering his phone. So. I can stay as well. I just can't overlap, but I can stay over. Yeah, sure. So print me archive. I've now archived 13,000 articles, and, and these aren't just everything. These are the good stuff, uh, legitimate publications, not fringe, prior to the Internet, obviously not even Internet. And I estimate that's about maybe 30% of the total number of English language articles. And of these 13,000 articles – Maybe less than 1% are non-serious. They are overwhelmingly serious. Now, what do I mean by that? Meaning it's legitimate, straightforward writing about this happened, that happened, and so forth. And if you go read them, you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. Well, that wasn't enough. In other words, an issue like this is with the significance and implications that it has. The major paper should have been sending out people to start digging in other words, asking questions. In other words, how many reporters have, have, have stood down at the well, Pentagon? Well, these were like and, Sunday supplement stories, but they weren't beat reporters digging, digging, digging like Watergate, like the, during the Trump years, like the Mar-a-Lago thing. There was no concerted, focused effort to get to the bottom of the problem. Again, we're, we're basically saying the same thing. Good. There was a huge amount of coverage of the issue most of which was straightforward, 
but there was no challenging of the government. In other words, they might write a very significant story about a sighting or event or what have you, but nobody was going to go down to the press conference of the DOD and ask hard questions. The very there's only been a few times that any question has been asked at the DOD at their press conferences. One of the most famous ones was 1997 when they held that press conference there to try to debunk Roswell, and that blew up in their face. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, oh, the, 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 famous, press, the, the famous, press, the famous time compression. Yeah, and so essentially, I'm pretty convinced that the, the major networks and the major papers, which was enough because the other papers are going to follow along, made a decision with or without cooperation or coercion, that this issue, they were not going to challenge the government on it. Not, not in 40s, Well, you not in remember 50s, 60s, there was something called Operation Mockingbird where the CIA bragged in private that they had key people in every major news outlet yeah. in the country, if not the planet, and they how could suppress serious digging. Again, yeah. Again, we, the whole story of why the press chose made the decisions it made is worthy of a major book uh, by a person that can write major books because there is an incredible story here. It would be very difficult to well, get Well, the out. time is but come, Stephen. That's your okay. book. Uh, not a chance. That's your first book. Uh, no, I have attention span of approximately 12 and a half seconds. So the point I'm making is, Hire is a ghostwriter. in the last two since, – since the spring of 2021 – we have had a solid year and a half of major unprecedented engagement of the issue by the Congress and major unprecedented response by the Department of Defense. Now, the latest uh, notable action is language has been served in the Senate and in the House Appropriation, uh, the Defense Intelligence, uh, the Defense uh, National Defense Authorization Act and the Intelligence Authorization Funding. Uh, the Mark Warner is the one that proposed the bill for the Senate, and he is, you know, he's the, the chairman of the Intel Committee. So yeah, that's he's, the he's, bill he's from Virginia, Democratic senator, and he's from Virginia. Virginia. And um, Mark Gallagher was backed up by Ruben Diego. Gallagher is a Democrat. Gallagher's, I mean, Gallagher's a Republican. Gallagher's a Democrat. They have the one who submitted the language into the, the House bill. Now, what's what's important about this language? This is very, very important because they went to a place notable for a number of reasons. And so it's Section 16 of the House bill. It's entitled Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Reporting Procedures. It has a section called authorization for, report, uh, authorization for Reporting. It has a section uh, entitled uh, – let me just get here, please. Um, hang on. Uh, let me go on down. Uh, why can't I find that? It has a section called Rec- Records of Non-Disclosure Agreements, right? And then it has another section titled Systems for Reporting. I, I don't – I'm not going to read this to you because I, most people will, will struggle with the language. <laughs> but essentially what they have done here is they have laid down the basis for internal support for people inside government who wish to come forward and talk about what they know about this issue, right? And that's one thing. The second thing they have done, and this is particularly notable – in fact, I think I'll read this. So wait, listen, before carefully. you read it, let me ask, let me see if I understand this. They provide it, and we're at the bottom of the hour, so you know maybe we'll just hold on. Let me just ask the question. You can think about it. They are providing air cover for witnesses, whistleblowers in no. this. Okay. 
Not exactly. Uh, that's how it's being interpreted. That's a misinterpretation on the Internet, social media. God bless social media. But that's not what's happening. This is protection for people coming forward within the government to the government, not to the public or the press. All right? Okay? Okay. And when we come back from uh, the bottom, I'll read you just one key paragraph, which will make a key point, and then I'll, 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 I'll then mention a second paragraph, which is really important. And, okay. and most people don't know this yet because who the hell reads language in proposed bills <laughs> except lobbyists? All right. <laughs> Hold it there. My first guest this morning, we have many, and we're going to be covering the transition in the royal family, the monarchy in Britain for the majority of the program. But uh, I wanted to kind of kick off tonight with this conversation, because oddly enough, there is a relationship between disclosure and the crown in my model. And when I ran this by someone who is kind of in a position to know, my model seems to be, shall we say, encouraged. And we'll get to that and a number of other things when we come back after the uh, bottom of the hour. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night. September 18th, here in the Land of Enchantment, just hours away from the beginning of the Queen's final journey out of Westminster Abbey to where they're going to lay her and uh, the Duke of Edinburgh to to rest. Um, The reason I have Steve Bassett on this morning is because, as we'll get to in the next uh, few minutes, 
I think there is a unique role for King Charles III in this unfolding and accelerating and multifaceted disclosure process. And in a few minutes, I'm going to kind of run the idea by Steve again and, and see what he responds. But, okay, Stephen, so we're, we're in the throes of legislation in the current NDAA, the National yeah. Defense Authorization Act, but it is not, as is being widely reported, some kind of witness protection or whistleblower protection. So if it's not that, what is it? Well, it's actually a number of things. These are these are two. The 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 the, uh, the Senate bill has three full sections devoted to the UAP issues. Section seven hundred three, four, and five. I mean, they're massive. All right, uh, I'm still going through them. But again, to give you to to to, to highlight that this is now becoming part of the standard legislative, crazy, interactive, sometimes slow process that everything else that we that the government does is of any importance at all goes through. Let me just read the first paragraph in Warner's bill, Section 703, which is entitled The Modification of Requirement for Office to Address Unidentified Aerospace Undersea Phenomena. This is the one making right. its way through the Senate. This is the Senate side. And uh, and this was submitted on July like 12th, oh. right? So we're about two months out. Yesterday. But nobody expects the ND, NDA to be signed until after the election. It's highly unlikely it will right. be signed before the election. So we're not, it's not going to be signed until you know, late in November. But the first paragraph I love, it says, not later than 120 days after the date of the enactment of the Intelligence Authorization Act for fiscal year 223. So that's a four-month time frame. If it gets signed in November, that would put it essentially in April. The Secretary of Defense, in coordination with the Director of National Intelligence, shall establish an office within a component of the Office of the Secretary of Defense or within a joint organization of the Department of Defense and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence to carry out the duties of the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force. Well, you see... What, you know, you know uh, in this draft, uh, the, the good Senator Warner is fail, failing to note that that name has been changed twice uh, since the beginning. Well, that's and staff. So what's hap- that's obviously what's staff. What's happened yeah. here, yeah, the staff. What's happened here is the Unidentified Air Phenomena Task Force has become a kind of nick- nickname for the unfolding series of, um, of offices, right, or programs as they want to call it. Uh, and and so he's and, and they have so they're not being precise here, but they're using the nickname. So I thought that that was pretty kind of cool. Um, and this shows, you know, they're working it out. But the name of the section 1683 in section 703 is this: the establishment of the Unidentified Aerospace Undersea Phenomena Joint Program Office, which means that this. This legislation may very well contain a new name for the UAP program within the Department of Defense, or it may be another office that the Aero office we talked about earlier will be underneath. I don't know, but you're beginning to see how this thing could eventually involve 3,000 people. All right. Now, I'm going to jump over to the House bill. This just gets interesting. This is what Gallagher, who's who's really uh, on fire about this issue. 
uh, which is important because he's on an important subcommittee. Uh, probably the most the most hair on fire person in the Congress is, is a congressman named Tim Burchett from Kentucky, but he he doesn't he's not on a committee that is relevant. But I don't think he cares. I mean, he just he outdoes himself every couple of weeks. He's very intense. He's all but basically saying. I'm meeting with extraterrestrials the first Sunday of every month. We're talking about their agenda. But in other words, what? he's intense. I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. Oh, but he, oh. he's really aggressive in his statement. Okay. okay. Tim Burchett, B-U-R-C-H-E-T-T. Check him out. Okay, so here, here is what this House bill that Gallagher and Gallego are doing. One, they're trying to set up some protection from inside witnesses. In other words, if you are anywhere in the government or the services and you want to come forward yeah, but on isn't this, that whistleblower protection? No, 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 it is not. If you, are, if you are someone in the government that wants to come forward and, and report something, report a sighting, whatever, right. to your boss, to your office, to your director, or to the Congress, right, you have not, – not to the public. Uh, then you have protection against any kind of retaliations and what have you. Uh, in other words, it's internal protection for people coming forward from having something, uh, having, have, have, having problems or being hassled in any way. It also provides, interesting enough, the right for people to file civil action if that problem is not resolved internally, which I thought was notable. All right. So, what they're doing is they're making it easier for people inside to communicate with uh, their, their superiors who in many cases may not really know fully what's going on. And more importantly, communicate with the, the, the intelligence committees with Congress. In other words, you're trying to grease the sled. This is going to help get those hearings together. Okay, but, let, let me stop you, know, you again because I'm a little confused. Normally, someone working for Treasury, if they see a UFO – sighting if they, if they have a sighting they're not going to go to their boss at treasury they're going to go either to the media the newspaper tell their family no. etc no. or no. they won't tell anybody they don't. or no, they Richard, won't. they don't they don't go they don't go to the press nobody goes to the press hardly there's only been a few people that have come out like that uh, why would if you're themselves. in treasury and you see a ufo would you go to your boss you would a treasury person isn't going to go to anybody i'm saying anybody who has something appropriate that their boss needs to know, or the Congress needs to know, or the DOD needs to know. They're they're being provided under this piece of legislation protection from undue negative consequences. But it's not a whistleblower act, and this is very significant. And let me let me hammer this point home. I've done it a number of times. I'm going to keep doing it. A whistleblower is somebody who comes forward with information about illegal activities within the organization in which they work, whether it's a corporation or a nonprofit or the Air Force or anybody else, after they have made efforts to, uh, to resolve the problem and bring it to the attention of their superiors within the agency they work, failing to get response, they come forward and blow the whistle on this illegal activity. That is not what these witnesses are doing. It is not what these witnesses want to do. Why? Because the truth embargo, as I call it, is legal. It has always been legal, just like the sequestration and the embargoing of our uh, nuclear uh, uh, secrets and, and sources and, and plans and agendas and everything else is absolutely classified, and it's absolutely legal. 
if you're an anti-war person and thinks they should tell us all this stuff, that way we'd have a better idea of what the risks were of war, fine, but it's, it's not illegal. And so these witnesses are not spilling the beans on the government as whistleblowers. They are simply witnesses who have information that could be useful. And the truth embargo and the policy of the government has been to discourage them from coming well, forward. Well, again, I'm totally confused because if, I'm a, if I work for the government and I work for commerce or I work for the post office or whatever, I work for the government. I'm not talking about the Air Force now or the military branches. And I see a UFO and I report it. Like, who cares? The only reason someone would care is if in the department of the federal government that I work for, I see something going on related to this phenomenology, like development of technology, anti-gravity, free energy, whatever, whatever cloaking, that would be relevant to the bigger picture. And I'm prohibited up to now by law from saying anything like any other classified special access program. So what's yeah, different? Yeah, look, so what's different? The, the law, the bill applies to everybody, but obviously it's going to be a more appropriate and more likely to come into play if it ever comes into play with respect to people in the in, in the appropriate. Who like work up the street age. here at Los Alamos on anti gravity? Yeah, or so, ruins on Mars. <clears throat> so the point I'm making is that when uh, any of the pilots in the Tic Tac incident reported, they did they did report to people. Uh, what was happening? It was known. All right. Um, they wanted to, if they, if they if they felt that maybe the reports were not being handled appropriately, they could have gone further up the chain of command, and ultimately they could have gone to Congress, perhaps privately. All right. Now, again, this is not a distinction without a difference. If they were to go outside the chain of command. And go to Congress because they did not feel the information they were provided was being addressed properly. That does not make them a whistleblower. Whistleblowers blow the whistle on illegal activity, fraud, crimes, you know, felonies, well, whatever. Wait, wait, wait. Before you can establish it's illegal, you have to have a trial. They report activity they think is untoward, anomalous, weird, doesn't is not is not ethical, whatever. They don't know if it's illegal. They might think it is. Maybe it's not. So this gives these people cover to report what inside the government? Unusual activity? Formerly, formerly the, classified the, the, the programs? Legis the legislation that is in the House bill is primarily referring to uh, reports related to UAP, unidentified, well, Phenomena with underneath okay. the all domain. This all uh, this all domain umbrella, yeah. literally spelled out in the legislation that it's air, sea, undersea, and space. All right, hang on a second. Uh, let me go down here because I have a really specific reason for asking. Yeah, which we've yeah, discussed on the show at great length. In other words, is all domain defined legally? In the legislation, uh, see these are these are complex bills. Um, Usually, look, at the top of legislation, there are definitions of what you're talking about. Yeah, they have definitions in here, uh, and the definitions are referring to pretty much the phenomenon. 
This is essentially confined to witnesses related to the phenomena, however it's named, however it's slotted. Uh, well, if the legislation been... covers space, that would cover NASA missions to the moon, Mars, etc. And there's Again, a it... huge component of stuff that needs to be reported from people at JPL who are obviously not reporting it because of legal repercussions. Again, the point that I'm making here is actually very simple. The term whistleblower is incorrect for what this bill is addressing and what the people are doing. And it is it is a problem because these people, with few exceptions, do not see themselves as whistleblowers. They, are, they see themselves as individuals that have information which is seemingly classified. In some cases, it is classified. Or if it's not formally classified, it's discouraged because of certain policies that the United States government has. One of the problems with, with the UAP issue for the government is that it's one thing to classify uh, our, our nuclear secrets, which are put away somewhere, and you can't get <laughs> to them, but everybody knows that they exist, but you can't get to them. Unless it's you want to go thing. to Mar-a-Lago, and then you can read them freely. And then it's one, another thing to classify something which has been flying around in our skies for years that you can't even acknowledge is there. This is the dilemma they've always faced. This, this stuff See, is I'm trying, trying to, to find out, does this apply to NASA? Because it applies to the phenomena wherever it, it, it turns well, up. Well, how do you define the phenomena? It is, it is unidentified objects in, under the sea, in our air, and in space. UAP, you know, ultimate So domain. an ancient we, ruin on Mars would qualify as an unidentified object. I think it would certainly it – would, it would very likely – A good be, lawyer could make the case. See, Again, if this, this gets this signed this fall – This isn't going to go there. Richard, listen What do you mean it's me. not going to go there? It's These dependent people on individual, are not hang on, Steve. It's, it, it, it depends on what their mindset is. If they've been sitting I, I on this for years because they had inhibitions legally to t tell the truth, this legislation gives them air cover to be a whistleblower, however you no, want to define it. No, it does not. Okay, I'm going to emphasize me, this because me. there is significant aspect to this. These people that work in our military, like Fravor and Dietrich and all the others, do right. not see themselves as whistleblowers blowing the whistle on the government that they serve. And when they're called whistleblowers, you are discouraging people from coming forward because they know what happens to whistleblowers, right? Reality winner might have been a whistleblower. I'm not sure, but she sort of approached it that way. She got five years in jail. This they are witnesses who have been discouraged from really coming forward on this issue because it's been it's been embargoed and it's an awkward thing, but it's embargoed. It's not not handled the way our nuclear secrets are, but nevertheless, it's a big deal. And it's been a problem for everybody for years. It sounds and to so me like we need saying, we need a lawyer who understands this. I, I assure you that it'll be a long time before the lawyers get into this, though I'm sure they would like to. What this bill is doing, making it, is they're telling the witnesses out there, like the nuclear witnesses and other pilots and so forth, and maybe even astronauts, that if you have information relative to this phenomena and you wish to come forward to your agency, your boss, or even to the Congress, you have protection. But that coming forward is classified. In other words, you're doing it in a classified setting. 
It doesn't mean coming forward to the New York Times. It means within the government, your agencies, what have you, we are saying, look, you've got some protection because we want some flow of information. So these are the restrictions written into the law as you're reading it. That's how it's described. Uh, And again, the word whistleblower is not in there, and it shouldn't be in there. But I understand why the people that have been aware of this issue and uh, well, it's don't kind like of a shorthand. Okay, it's it's basically public shorthand. All right, moving on. Uh, we don't have a lot of time. Yeah. Moving on. Okay, so they've done that. But the other thing they did is extraordinary. Is they did this. This this is very significant. This is in section C, identification of non-disclosure agreements. Listen carefully to this. The Secretary of Defense, the Director of National Intelligence, the Secretary of Homeland Security, the heads of such other departments and agencies of the federal government that have supported investigations of the types of events covered by subparagraph A of subsection B1, I think we know what those are, and activities and programs described in subparagraph B of of such subsections, and contractors of the federal government supporting such activities and programs shall conduct listen carefully, shall conduct comprehensive searches of all records relating to non-disclosure orders or agreements or other obligations relating to the types of events described in subsection A and provide copies of all relevant documents to the office. Hmm. What they are saying is that we want you to tell us where all the non-disclosures are what they cover, and so forth, which really cuts to the heart of this. Because once they know uh, the non-disclosures that are in place, they know who is covered by those, and then it makes it very easy for them to make decisions about uh, that non-disclosure doesn't apply, or we're waiving that, or that's not appropriate. And so this is going to be extremely difficult for them to comply with, but I don't think they have any choice unless this language is taken out of the bill. Right, a survey of all the non-disclosure and other—I think they said, um, what was it? Uh, uh, searches of all records relating to non-disclosure orders or agreements or other obligations. That covers a lot of territory. Essentially, it's the whole shebang that is, by and large, key to keeping this issue under control by appealing to the the uh, patriotism and the oath that public servants uh, take when they sign up to serve the United States government. Uh, it's cutting right to that, and basically we're going to review all that, and that's going to open up things a great deal. Meanwhile, they're also saying witnesses have protection. So this is a, a really significant piece of language. The question is th- this has to be now incorporated into the, the Senate bill, and if, all, if most of that language that Warner has put in goes through, on, and then the Gallagher amendment – this is an amendment, by the way uh, – whereas in the Senate bill, is part of the actual bill, sections 703, 4, and 5. This takes it to a whole new level. Now, in most cases, they're talking about timeframes, about six months. The, the Senate bill talks about another report once a year, I think in September, and a lot of people are going to read that and go, what, wait a minute. We, what do you mean? Right? You've known about this for years, decades. What do you mean putting it out another year? Don't panic. Just because that language is in there, just because they're talking about reports on an annual basis up to 2026 doesn't mean that they're, they're planning to drag this out to 2026. What it means is at this point, they are doing the things that are appropriate, right? 
and it's appropriate to to pace things that way. Wait a minute. Well, and, when when does the legislation that we've just talked about go into effect? Uh, what calendar the, year? Uh, this is the 2023 bill, probably be passed in November. I think some of the provisions have a six-month uh, 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 trigger. Another has a four-month trigger, meaning six months after the bill is passed, that puts it in the middle of next year. And then one of the sections talk about a report that's due once a year. I think it's in September. So, again, this is standard process, okay? Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking mean, about how people in the government report when they – are free of encumbrances for reporting. No, again, we're talking two different things. Witnesses can come forward anytime to anybody at any time. These are the formal reports they're expecting ah, okay. about See, certain that, things. That's the, and one of the reports they're expecting has to do with the, the NDAs. What, again, and I've, I've made this point many times that I'm not, I still struggle with the wording. There's two things going on right now. One is our government and the Pentagon are doing all of the things they should have done 50 years ago, 40 mm-hmm. years ago, 30 years, 20 years ago. They're finally doing it, okay? They're going to go – they're going to put these things in place. They're going to do the legislation and so forth. Okay, great. However, they know the dilemma that they have, namely that while the, all the millennials out there see this as, oh, I had no idea. Oh, that's cool. You're passing this legislation. Oh, there's something in the sky. Who knew? They know that there are tens of millions of people in this country that know otherwise. They know the government's known about this since 47 that they have embargoed the issue for seven decades. And so uh, they understand that a significant portion of, of, the, of the public, as well as journalists who are now coming alive. I mean, there is a whole new era of journalism, and it's starting to become investigative, if you haven't noticed. They're not going to put up with a two, three, four-year time frame. Now, I, that's what the legislation is showing. So how do, you, how do you solve that dilemma? Here's how you do it. You you put the legislation out there, you put in protections, you 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 talk about doing a survey of non-disclosure. All of this is useful and valuable, but and all, but all of this also sets up the structure that makes it that much more justified to hold the inevitable hearings, which could happen at any time, and we know that they want to have them. Well, wait. It's when you say it can happen at any time, they can only happen after this legislation is signed. Oh no, 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 no! You can call a hearing any time. We've already had one. How can you get witnesses to come forward if they're not protected? Again, <laughs> is protecting witnesses should they have a problem? If a witness is called to testify before the Senate Intel Committee yeah. under oath, under command of the committee, I assure you, they don't have to, have to worry about protecting. So the hearings is a separate thing. The hearings is something they can do now. And by holding those hearings and getting this information out via the witnesses to the vast majority of the world's people, they essentially drive the disclosure, toward, disclosure process toward confirmation. Mm-hmm. That is separate from the, all these other processes. They can't pass a bill and say, look, uh, we've got to have this report in 60 days, and we need another report in 90 days, and we need this and that, and give the impression, oh, my God, they're, they're fast-tracking this because obviously they're trying to get somewhere. No. They're treating it like a standard process, legislative process, a standard DOD response uh, in the usual ways because if they don't, it looks kind of funny. But by doing it, they are protecting themselves public relations-wise from the criticisms they're ultimately going to get when the full truth is known. Mm. At least they can say, hey – and by the way, everything they're setting up now, everything they're doing now is not wasted money. 
If we were to hold hearings next month and, and Biden announced the ET presence in December, none of this money is wasted because everything they are setting up was, is going to be even more needed after confirmation, after disclosure, when things really get going and the demands on the legislature, the Congress, and the DOD are 10, 20, 50 times greater than they are now. And it and becomes so a firestorm not... of public interest. Okay, I, I need to ask And they're my... going to have the structure to deal with. I need and to and ask so that, my that, awful... That's my update. I need to ask my off-the-wall question, which you and I have discussed privately, but I want you to talk about it publicly for those that are not you know, totally engaged. We have a new king in Britain whose name is Charles III. He has to follow an impossible act to follow, which is his mother. No one will ever equal Elizabeth II. He needs to do two things. The legitimacy of the monarchy is up for question at many different levels, particularly at the millennial level. And number two, his own reign, his own kingship is up for grabs. I suggested the other day that the perfect person to spearhead disclosure, a head of state, a head of the monarchy, would be Charles III because of his father's overwhelming interest. And I happen to have new information as to Charles' own interest in the entire subject of extraterrestrial life. What do you think? Well, here's what I know. Charles has an interest, has an interest in the subject, which he's kept fairly low key, but it's gotten out. Philip had a much bigger interest in the subject, and that's pretty much known, but he only went so far with it. Mount Fountain had an interest in the subject. And so, uh, but Elizabeth, I have no idea. I'm going to say no. All right. So, and she was queen. And so she was, she was uh, in charge. Is it possible that Charles could make a move here? Um, he is the head of state. I say the head of state. He is essentially the, he's, he's the head of the monarchy. He's a powerful person. Uh, he might, if he were going to do something, he would, he would probably get in touch with, uh, he would probably contact the current prime minister, the new woman that just took over, what his name is, Truss, Russ, I can't mm-hmm. remember. Truss. Um, Truss, yes. And discuss, Truss. and discuss the possibility, maybe even querying her about what does the UK know about this issue. Obviously, the Pentagon is doing a whole lot of moving and shaking here. Uh, we haven't heard much from MI5 or MI6 on this, uh, or their Ministry of Defense. They, they've kept a, a pretty much low-key. Uh, and they might talk about maybe uh, taking some action. I'm going to say that's not going to happen, and the, the principal reason is this. This issue is brutal. Uh, the United States is the world's defender of democracy. We've got all the weapons. UK doesn't gain anything by one-upping us on this. It doesn't by stepping in front of us in line. It, it, it probably loses a lot, and so I just don't think that 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 would move forward. That doesn't mean he wouldn't be very supportive if things get going here, but I cannot see the UK uh, taking this uh, option away from us. Okay. Well, I want to thank my guest this morning for the first hour, Steve Bassett, who is head of the Paradigm Research Organization in Washington D.C the key lobbying um, arm of the citizen scientists all interested in ultimate disclosure of who is here and what's out there. When we come back, we're going to turn to the queen, to the crown, and to the subject of uh, the morning. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, 
And here is Karen Carpenter to take us off this uh, first hour. See you on the other side. We are your friends. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com
And welcome back, everyone. You know, I've never really listened to that all the way through or actually seen the lyrics. There's some pretty interesting lyrics in there, including the one about knavish tricks. I never caught that before, knavish tricks. Okay, so for the next two hours, what we're going to do is we're going to segue from Stephen's update. And regardless of his uh, 22nd century political opinions, it is my opinion that because of an extraordinary amount of history, which is basically buried in the uh, promo that I wrote for the other side of midnight this morning, um, in fact, it is more than likely, given the ambiance and ambiguities and uh, frail geopolitical uh, tensions between the major nuclear powers of the planet, that for a variety of reasons, if Edward Show chooses to make this a cardinal point of his, however long his reign will, will uh, run, um, he could do much worse than to be the point person, again, as part of a council, part of a uh, multilateral agreement between Russia, uh, the United States, maybe Australia, maybe China, to jointly announce uh, particularly given what uh, China has been revealing about what's on the moon, to reveal that, in fact, we are not alone. Um, let me kind of read to you what, uh, what I wrote this morning as the promo for this show. I started out, after kingship was lowered down from heaven, the kingship was in Eridu. Thus begins a late version of the famed Sumerian king's list, a small inches long, fired clay brick tablet recording a series of much earlier historical dynasties of different Mesopotamian cities and their rulers existing in ancient Sumer now Iraq almost 7,000 years before the present mainstream scholars believe this clay transcription immortalizes the original ancient founding of the first known city on earth, a place once called in Sumerian, Eridu, Eden in the Western Bible, scribe of a much, much later ruler, sometime around 2100 BCE. King Uta Hegel of Uruk had just led a successful military campaign to expel the Gushians from ancient Sumer, barbarian occupiers who had plunged all of southern Mesopotamia into a centuries-long dark age. With this small cuneiform proclamation, Utu Hegel was clearly seeking to legitimize his newly won reign by claiming direct heritage lineage to when kingship was lowered from heaven millennia before. Exactly. King Charles III and the entire royal family of Britain. Tonight we're going to explore an extraordinary idea. All the current rulers of the earth, who, more than King Charles III, has the hereditary right to reintroduce the human race to their collective ancient birthright when kingship was lowered from the stars to govern all mankind from heaven and with that let me open the pot 
and introduce our first guest of the evening, Dr. Chandra Wickrama Singh. Are you there, Chandra? Chandra, are you there? Okay, I do not see Chandra on my screen. So, we have a number of other subjects of the uh, late Queen, um, Queen Elizabeth, with us. We've got Andrew Curry, we've got Ruggiero Kahlo, we've got Bob Harrison. One and all, please join, and I will introduce you more specifically when you join the conversation while we are waiting for uh, Chandra to uh, catch up on Skype. I understand there's somewhat of an issue on Skype. So, are any of the other members of the British Commonwealth or the Isle of Britain with us? Good morning, Richard. Good morning, Bob. Nice to hear your voice. Good morning, Richard. Is that uh, Ruggiero? It is. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Is Andrew with us? Mr. Curry. Unmuting helps. Okay, he's not with us yet. Okay. Um, okay, gentlemen, you are both residing uh, currently in the British Isles. You are both subjects of the now late Queen. Uh, what are your thoughts on her passing and the succession of King Charles III? Uh, Ruggiero, why don't you go first? Um, I think it's a sad moment for uh, the nation. I think the world in general, she was uh, a pillar of integrity in, in how she presented herself um, internationally, the public stage. And, um, you know, she would, she would never say a, a bad word um, about anyone or, or anything generally. So as a, as a role model, she, she is the, was the, the pinnacle of how to conduct yourself, um, I guess, for all of humanity, certainly for, for the British people. Go ahead. Um, with, with myself, uh, our family are having a um, get-together. My nan is 96. So it was the same age as Same Queen. age, yes. Yeah, she, uh, she was quite upset by her passing. And um, in the... Well, it, it, it was so sudden and unexpected. It's like we saw her just the day before uh, shaking hands with the new prime minister, yeah. smiling, looking, you know, frail. But people at 96 do kind of look frailer than, than uh, some of the rest of us. And then the next day, it's like she's gone. It was so right. sudden. Sudden. Hello, hi. Sorry about that. Oh, Chandra, Richard. hang on. I'm 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 talking to Ruggiero. I'm, I will get to you in a minute. Okay, hold on. Okay. Uh, go ahead, Ruggiero. Where was I at? So you were um, talking about how your grandmother is 96. Oh yeah, my so, God. So she decided she decided she wanted, for historical reasons, for us all to get together as a family, so we'd have something to talk about in the future about this historic event. But um, her passings. You know, so important. I think for the, for the British people alone. You know, my grandmother was a nurse in World War Two, and um, my grandfather was actually captured uh, defending uh, out of Dunkirk, and he he was, was uh, blown up um, oh my. in the in the in the fields. He was a anti-tank uh, rifleman in, in in the infantry, the um, East Surrey Guards, which was quite they were famous. They were told to hold against um, Hitler's forces. So he was, it was blown up and um, his ankle was shattered and then 
got taken to uh, to Germany as a, and then Poland as a POW. Spoke no German whatsoever. He escaped four times, and on the fourth time back, he. Uh, Wait a minute. I think, I think Skype is cutting out. This, this. So you said. Can you hear me now? Uh, yes. On on the fourth time, what happened? So he escaped three times and got caught. On the fourth time, um, the British had to leave the camp that he was in because of the uh, opposition were going to come back and probably finish them off. Um, he, he knew that they were near the, uh, the lines of, of the British and American forces. The first person he bumped into was his sergeant major. Who oh, lost Yep. <laughs> um, and the kind of story gets a bit more incredible. When he was about to leave and get flown back over to Britain, he was in a space with uh, the other um, troops, and he was about to get on the plane, and he said to one of the guys in front, do you mind if I don't, if I swap places and you have the plane? I want to go behind you and, and stay with my mate who I've been on uh, through the whole war with. So that plane, they swapped places, the plane went over and, and it never landed. Oh. So I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be so he gave up his seat and went on a later flight, and that aircraft crashed. That's right. That's, yeah, that's the story. Oh, my gosh. So it, it leads up to why, why is this, you know, the passing for us so important? I think I just put, put on this one point, um, which I think I mentioned to you on, on an email, that what, what our, uh, our ancestors you know, gave our lives for, their lives for, was, you know, to defend the crown, to defend the, all that stands for, I guess, righteousness and goodness. And so the queen by the British people is held by such high esteem, you know, because she's the you know, defender of the faith and, I guess, defender against evil, if you want to call it that. And what my grandparents had to go through in, you know, the 1939-45 war was, you know, the very worst that humanity, humanity could face. So she is, I guess, in, in our vision, the very highest in uh, personal and moral stature. That was my point I, I wanted to make about why Charles has then got to, you know, he's got to hold that stature. And, and honor it through his entire you know, reign. And well, I think you'll do a good job. It, well, it seems to me that given that your grandparents were of, of her age mm. and they served in the war and then evolved and lived their lives in parallel to hers, there's a lot of people in Britain who she became another member of the family. But very much so. Very, very much so. And that's more than just a metaphor. It's like, you know, I mean, when I looked at her, you know, I, I saw my own grandmother and I'm, yeah. you know, thousands of miles away, but particularly her wicked sense of humor. Turns out that Elizabeth had an incredibly wry and, and droll and amazing sense of humor. And uh, before the morning's out, I'm going to tell at least a couple of stories that I've heard that are just too good to keep to yourself. So, Robert, um, you're another British subject of the crown in Britain, which is somewhat of an anachronism in the 22nd century. How did you view Elizabeth? Well, although I'm a monarchist, I'm not uh, really a, a, a royalist. Uh, so I, I don't pay a great deal of attention to royal affairs, you know, to the soap opera that goes on. 
the, the press loves so much. But uh, yes, it's uh, it, it was a uh, you know when you know the morning she died, the uh, you know they were announcing that she was uh, ill and that the family were rushing up. Apparently, you know, apparently it was a big surprise to them too. Uh, they only had a, a few hours warning that something was up. Uh, you know, so yes, uh, a bit surprised. You know, uh, attacks of misty and uh, sometimes watery eyes when uh, you know, see things on the internet that are going on about it. It's very touching the lying in state. I think uh, you know, so many, so many people that. Uh, um, oh, I think by now um, there are oh, millions oh, of people that have stood in line for up to like 24 hours to walk past yes, the yeah, casket. It's amazing, and some of them, you know, although a lot of the let's say frail people of you know, may you know, some of the early times only had to only had to wait six hours. Uh, you know, people with Zimmer frames and you know walking sticks and things. Um, yes, really really meant a lot to a lot of people. Uh, to me, uh, I've, I've, you know, spot on as, as, as the monarch. Uh, she tended to uh, judge the times very well. She was, she was the least interventionist monarch we've had in our history. So she only once uh, Try to disassociate herself uh, from a prime minister, and that was uh, Margaret Thatcher. Mm. A, a scandal about that. Uh, I think a press secretary was the one who fell on his sword about it. And that was back in the 1980s. You mean when it leaked uh, out that she and uh, Thatcher did not really see eye to eye? Well, basically, basically the press secretary uh, leaked to the Times. And that's leaked in uh, quotation marks uh, that, uh, that, that uh, the Queen thought that Thatcher's government was uh, too callous, too, too extreme, and too divisive. And you know, for a lot of the country, the, the, the 1980s were a, a uh, quite horrid time economically. Uh, so yes, I suppose she was just matching the, the mood of the nation then, but she, she that's the only real time where she uh, overstepped the mark as a politician. So, so, yeah. yeah, well, obviously, it, 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 those of us on it, this side of the Atlantic didn't follow the day by day by day, but the impression that I got, even in those years, you know, 10 years, 20 years, whatever, is that she was extraordinarily um, uh, genteel, extraordinarily closed mouths about any conferences, any confidences. Her meetings with prime ministers were really secret. Uh, she did not make public proclamations except in kind of a general, you know, the, 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 the good of the country, the, the, you know, the kind of national consciousness of Great Britain, that kind of thing. Um, do you think that in part the, the high esteem which the monarchy by a lot of people is still held is primarily because of her as an individual as opposed to the institution. And I want to ask Ruggiero the same question. Shall I answer first? Yes, please. 
well, one of the things about the, the monarch, uh, the monarchy, is it acts as a an alter, as a moral a, a moral authority alternative to the politicians who you know if you have any profession you know opinion poll politicians right down there at the bottom uh, so having somebody whose power really is based on setting an example uh, hi i'm here ah thank you, thank uh, you. Okay. Uh, go ahead robert Yes, having, having somebody whose power really is based on setting an example uh, and acting as our foremost ambassador to the world, you know, as head of state. Uh, so she represented in a lot of people's minds, people who were her subjects, which is an interesting phrase, um, as someone who embodied the higher principles of the kingdom, of the united kingdom of britain as opposed to the day-to-day -day grubby you know compromised political hurly-burly of you know the prime minister parliament that kind of thing she was uh, she was the essence of the nation metaphor i think she sanitized politics when it became dirty and politics in in the uk as in most countries often becomes very dirty. Okay, let me introduce this disembodied English-sounding voice. This is Dr. Okay. Chandra Wickrama Singh, who was supposed to be with us a few minutes ago, and we had some issues with connection. Um, Chandra, same question to you. How you actually began, not in England, but in Ceylon, in Sri Lanka, under, right. under Elizabeth's rule. Tell me about you growing up with this distant queen controlling, in essence, your country, even though she was thousands of miles away. Well, yeah, it, I mean, the, 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 the English or British royal family was very much uh, at, at the, uh, the heart of my early life because my, my father was uh, uh, started off his career, he's a mathematician and so on, and he became an Indian civil servant, which was a very high ranking sort of administrative position that uh, essentially uh, helps England, helps the, the, the empire to rule India. And he was, uh, he was given a posting in India and so on. So uh, that's where he started. And then he didn't like the, the experience of, uh, of doing such things in India and sort of essentially helping the, the English and the British to rule India. So he returned to Sri Lanka. But when I, when I when, and got married there, and uh, when I was born in 1939, uh, Ceylon was still very much a part of the British Empire. And uh, there was no, unlike in India, there was no sort of resistance against that. People accepted the, uh, the fact of, uh, of Ceylon being part of the empire, being essentially, essentially British, in fact. And all of the institutions that uh, I sort of grew up in in Sri Lanka were, were uncannily British when, when I look at them now. Uh, so this was the sort of backdrop against which I grew up. And uh, at the time that uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth II ascended the throne, 
Of course, it was a very turbulent time in world history. The war had taken place, as one of your uh, commentators mentioned, and uh, many traumatic things happened around the world. And so the, uh, the, the reign of Elizabeth was one of essentially uh, alleviating the, the suffering, the economic uh, problems that followed from the aftermath of the World War, and essentially also in, in some way um, softening the, the, the feelings of hatred that were were sort of uh, around in, in various forms uh, post-war. So this was the kind of uh, uh, colonial situation in, in Ceylon, in, in the crown colony of Ceylon that I essentially grew up in. So did Ceylon suffer uh, more than the rest of the, uh, uh, now the Commonwealth under, under British rule? No, it was quite a benign rule in Ceylon. India was essentially, the, the British rule in India was, to begin with, it was really quite brutal. Uh, in 1599, Queen Elizabeth I uh, gave a royal charter to a, uh, a public corporation called the British East India Company. It wasn't a, a government organization. It was a, it was a private corporation uh, of shareholders, essentially uh, putting their spare cash into a venture, and the venture was uh, essentially one of uh, exploitation and pillage. They, they were they were allowed to go to anywhere in the world, and in the name of uh, the Queen of England, Queen Elizabeth I, they were allowed to to trade. That was the uh, that was the sort of ostensible motive for all this uh, exploration. But uh, it ended up with, uh, I mean, a large-scale pillage. And I hate to, to call it that, but that is what it turned out to be. Uh, the British East India Company went to India at, a time, at the time of the Mughal Empire, the peak of the Mughal Empire. India was then the richest country in the world, according to all the historians that I've talked to. Uh, and Britain was sort of quite low down in the in the pecking order of uh, of uh, sort of world uh, wealth, and so within a few decades, the um, British East India Company essentially uh, did not quite took over India, but they uh, they did things that are not really worth recalling in these times that we are trying to celebrate now. So that was a, a rather grim episode, but um, um, but in Ceylon it was it was much more benign. I mean, I think we had a British rule that we accepted as being uh, a fact of life, and uh, British institutions were uh, were sort of imported uh, to to Ceylon universities, schools, exactly like in Britain. In fact, I went to a school that was modelled on on the English public school system. Uh, it was called Royal College Colombo. And uh, I uh, learned Latin and Greek and uh, all the things that are uh, taught in these, uh, that were taught in the English public schools in those days. Now, of course, they don't teach much Latin, Latin or Greek in anywhere in England or anywhere in the world, for that matter. But uh, so that was the, so I benefited greatly from the 
uh, experience of, of growing up in a British colony and the, as I said, the experience of Ceylon under the British was not, uh, there was no, uh, I mean, India had so many mutinies and they had wars against Britain, against British rule from time to time. And, and Ceylon sort of didn't have anything like that. So we were quite... Uh, we I'll tell you what, we're, we're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is Dr. Chandra Rikrama Singh, who began his life and career in Ceylon, now known as Sri Lanka, and then migrated to Great Britain. And uh, we'll talk a bit about that. When we come back, we also have Rogero Kalo with us, who was a British subject of the Queen, now the King, and our own Bob Harrison, who is uh, uh, quite a bit distance further up in the middle of uh, uh, Britain at this uh, moment in the dawn skies of Britain as the Monday morning dawns on the 19th with the Queen's funeral, the state funeral, only a few hours away. You're on the other side of midnight. Um, what you're hearing in the background is the bagpiper lament the flowers of the forest to Her Majesty the late Queen Elizabeth II that was played at one of her services earlier this week. We shall return. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side is midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. That, of course, is uh, another rendition of God Save the Queen. We're doing a memorial this morning, and I want to talk about, as we get through the rest of the show, uh, the connection that I see between literally the royal monarchy in Britain, the most extraordinary monarchy on earth. And, you know, Chandra, I'd like to talk a bit about your perceptions as to why, in an era of incredible political tumult, 
and uprising and everything from Mao Mao's to communism to so you know the Soviet domination, the rise of China, the, every peccadillo going on around the planet of a geopolitical nature, up to and including the constant threat during the Cold War of absolutely hot nuclear war, mm-hmm. how through this entire time, the presence of Queen Elizabeth seemed to be this extraordinary moderating continuity, this steady presence, this, well, she's just kind of like your grandmother. Yeah, I mean, it was entirely, I think, due to the personality, temperament of one great woman. I don't think any other monarch would have uh, filled that role at the time of these great crises that you mentioned, because the world uh, has been in turmoil. And when you look at the the performance of of, the, of Queen Elizabeth II right through her reign, uh, there is very little evidence of her being ruffled or or her essentially stoking the the hatreds and the flames of uh, discontent that were all around the world. And uh, uh, so this, I think, is a remarkable achievement of this just one great woman who was uh, a figurehead of, uh, of what should I say, of peace and... Uh, yeah, but and technically, yeah, she was a figurehead because politically, you know, there's not much power left in the Queen with Parliament and rules and being hemmed and all. But she was a larger-than-life individual... And she played this extraordinary role in terms of continuity. I mean, there's a lot of discussion over here now about the Constitution and saving democracy and, you know, various people that are absolutely out of their mind and doing bizarre things to try to drive a stake through the heart of our Republican democracy. And what we have to fall back on, in essence, is a piece of paper. It's hard to love a piece of paper. And, and and in terms of that role of something higher than the day-to-day political maelstrom, Queen yes. Elizabeth, during my entire life, because um, I was obviously born before you know she assumed the throne, and I watched this evolve over the decades, she was this extraordinary foundation that one could look to as the epitome of the best ideals of a uh, you know limited monarchy of a democratic people under a sovereign in a very different political condition than previous sovereigns in previous eras and times. And uh, apropos of that, I've been really intrigued by some of the pundits who basically have been, and I'll be very blunt, they've been kind of putting her down as someone who never expected to be queen or without uh, her father. Uh, brother abdicating he would yes. not been in line to be king and then his sudden death in 52 put her directly in the line of succession and yes. they, they've made very weird comments about her lack of this and her lack of education lack of preparation i want to play a piece of audio from the bbc of mm. a speech um in 1942 that she gave to children all mm. over the world from the british empire who had basically been flown to safety away from the island because of the of the German bombardment, even mm-hmm. though the royal family 
stayed at the uh, at the castle. They stayed in London. A lot of children of of uh, Britain left for for as far away as Australia. And at the age of fourteen, let me stress that again. At the age of fourteen, Princess Elizabeth gave this speech, and it is quite remarkable. Give a listen. Mm-hmm. This is one of the most important days in the history of Children's Hour. Some time ago, we were honored by the visit to the studio of the King and Queen with Princess Elizabeth and Princess Margaret during the broadcast of a Toytown program. Today, Princess Elizabeth is herself to take part in the Children's Hour and speak to the children of the Empire at home and overseas. Listeners in the United States of America will also hear this broadcast. Her Royal Highness, Princess Elizabeth. In wishing you all good evening, I feel that I am speaking to friends and companions who have shared with my sister and myself many a happy children's hour. Thousands of you in this country have had to leave your homes and be separated from your fathers and mothers. My sister, Margaret Rose, and I feel so much for you, as we know from experience what it means to be away from those we love most of all. To you living in new surroundings, we send a message of true sympathy. And at the same time, we would like to thank the kind people who have welcomed you to their homes in the country. All of us children who are still at home think continually of our friends and relations who have gone overseas, who have traveled thousands of miles to find a wartime home and a kindly welcome in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and the United States of America. My sister and I feel we know quite a lot about these countries. Our father and mother have so often talked to us of their visits to different parts of the world. So it is not difficult for us to picture the sort of life you are all leading and to think of all the new sights you must be seeing and the adventures you must be having. But I am sure that you too are often thinking of the old country. I know you won't forget us. It is just because we are not forgetting you that I want, on behalf of all the children at home, to send you our love and best wishes to you and to your kind hosts as well. Before I finish, I can truthfully say to you all that we children at home are full of cheerfulness and courage. We are trying to do all we can to help our gallant sailors, soldiers, and airmen. And we are trying, too, to bear our own share of the danger and sadness of war. We know, every one of us, But in the end, all will be well. For God will care for us and give us victory and peace. And when peace comes, remember, it will be for us, the children of today, 
to make the world of tomorrow a better and happier place. My sister is by my side, and we are both going to say good night to you. Come on, Margaret. Good night, children. Good night, and good luck to you all. Oh, that's an amazing speech. I can't believe that she was 14. I mean, when I was 14, Chandra, I was a gibbering idiot. And there are times now when I'm, you know, tongue-tied and all. It's listen to that presence. Listen to that ability to project herself into all those lives and imagine all those young kids. Well, it's, it's, it's a precursor of her whole existence, her whole life. Yeah, yeah, I want that, okay. I want to bring on now Georgia Lambert. She's joined us. She's our resident metaphysician. Georgia, when you listen to that, are you as struck as I am? Like, it's almost it was her destiny. At whatever level you want to interpret that word, her destiny to be the person and the continuity of the empire that she became. Absolutely. Can you hear me all right? Yes. Bye-bye. Okay. Wonderful. You know, in in listening to that speech, I'm reminded of the best quote that I've heard over this last week in relationship to the Queen. And the quote is, all of us are more than ourselves. She lived as if she remembered it. Yes. And at 14... I mean, you know, radio is one of those things. Remember, uh, Dan Rather wrote a book about television called The Camera Never Blinks. Well, in, in radio, what you're listening to tonight, everyone, the audio, you're listening to the nuance, the hesitations, the uncertainties. The, there is such a presence there. It's like she remembered who she was. <laughs> And, and you know, you, you brought up um, how she ascended to the throne. I, I think that uh, the world should remember that uh, the world owes Wallace Simpson a favor. <laughs> because, because, of course, uh, the, the man who would be king was a Nazi sympathizer. Oh. And he, if he had taken the throne, we would be living a very different history. Than we are today. Oh my gosh, I'd forgotten that. Yeah. It was quite the scandal at the time, yes? The Church of England and the members of the government they were desperate to get rid of Edward. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so Wallace Simpson was a hero of World War II, unsung. Wow. So, Chandra, um, you've got a couple of items there. Um, you've actually had interactions with the Queen. And with Prince Charles, why don't we why don't we uh, bring people up to speed on what those were? Well, I didn't have any. I haven't had any, any direct interactions with the Queen, but with uh, with Prince uh, Charles, the interaction I had was via Arthur C. Clarke, because I was a very great. I was really friendly with Arthur C. Clarke, and I used to visit him very often and so on. And uh, days before uh, he was supposed to be he was to be knighted by. The, the monarch um, in England, uh, the, the queen couldn't uh, fly over, so Prince Charles flew over with his sword or whatever regalia he has to uh, use to make make uh, Arthur C. Clarke, uh, Sir Arthur C. Clarke. So that was my um, 
sort of link with Arthur C. Clarke and Prince Charles, sort of in a combined uh, sense. But my, I mean, my connection, I've never met the Queen, I've admired her speeches of, uh, of, I mean, just like the speech that you rec- you re- recorded, the recorded speech from her childhood was fantastic. And it was just iconic of the whole of her uh, later life. And I've listened to all what she said, particularly recently over the pandemic when she said, we shall meet again. Oh, uh, an echo of that incredible World War II song. Isn't it? Yeah, that yes. is fantastic. And Which obviously, I think, was, I think she did that very deliberately, very deliberately. Oh, she did that very del- deliberately, unquestionably. This was, uh, this was a, almost a wartime situation that uh, we were encountering in terms of pandemics, in terms of the pandemic, in terms of the imprisonment of a vast number of people, in, or almost all the people in, in the UK for many, many weeks in uh, uh, in isolation and, and in sort of desperation to keep well and uh, at the same time to try to make contact with their friends and so on through social media and uh, all the all the equipment that we have in the modern age. Yeah. Hey, so, if, 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 if everybody goes to Radio with Pictures uh, and the way you get there, of course, is you click on tonight's banner on the main page that takes you to the guest page. Underneath, you'll see where it says Fast Links to Items. Click on Chandra's name there at the end of the list. That will take you down his section. The first image is a great shot of Arthur and you, somewhat younger, both of you. Oh, yeah, much younger. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, the number two, I guess, is some kind of a uh, uh, YouTube uh, video from from the uh, British News about the Queen visiting uh, Salon. When did she visit? Oh, 1957, and this was, uh, I think, shortly after her coronation. She did a grand world tour of all of her empire, and uh, I mean, she was enormous. So she she ascended to the throne in 52. Her coronation was not until, what, 53, I believe? Something like that, and then by 56, 57, she was on a world tour, and that was the time at which I first saw her which is the in, year of uh, sputnik of course yeah of course yeah 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 i mean her uh, i think as i mentioned in a letter that i wrote to the times recently she, her ascent to the throne started off the era of space exploration really it 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 marked in in many ways it marked the end of the colonial era because the colonies were then sort of trying to you know, in in a sort of nice sort of way, mostly most of them trying to separate and from the the crown and assert their own independence and so forth. And India did that a few years after the Queen ascended to the throne, and Ceylon likewise did that. But they in in Ceylon, the the love between the uh, the people of Ceylon and the and the monarch continued sort of without any change of uh, of intensity even after uh, uh, the, the queen was not the head of state state and Ceylon became a republic uh, the commonwealth the queen were very much part of the um, part of our scene in, in in Ceylon and in fact i would not be what i am now if not for the commonwealth and because uh, i i was uh, at school in Ceylon, I went to university first in Ceylon, 
And then I won, won what was the first uh, Commonwealth scholarship that was awarded. There was a series of scholarships awarded by the British government called Commonwealth Scholarships to, uh, to, to come to British universities uh, and to do research and so on. So I had applied to, uh, to do this and I applied for a Commonwealth Scholarship to come to Trinity College, Cambridge. And that's, that's where my astronomical career began. You know, one of the weirdest things is in an era of disillusion of empires and monarchies becoming passe and republics coming to the fore and democracies mm. and all this, she presided over a, a commonwealth that actually expanded voluntarily to where I think when she died, there are like 52 nations in the commonwealth now. And, and the uh, original uh, uh, royal family uh, reigned over something like 14 uh, countries or, or uh, uh, colonies. Yeah, yeah. So where, where did this, this embodiment of, you know, the, the Commonwealth idea on steroids that everybody, it's almost like, this is going to be an interesting analogy for most folks, it's almost like the Federation of Planets agglutinating more and more planets out of independent, you know, the vassal states building, you know, Gene Roddenberry's vision of a federation that's bigger than all of the some of its parts. It's like Elizabeth, by went of her own personality, did this all by herself. Yeah, I think to a large extent that is true, but it was... Uh... It was a collection of peoples with a shared history and with a common kind of aspiration to to live in peace in a in a world that had been really recently torn apart by wars and by cold wars and by hot wars and so on. So this was uh, a way of, uh, of uniting the world under the umbrella of a monarch who was uh, so benign and harmless and uh, uh, no one could hate her. So this, I think this was very, very... Well, you know, there's this famous phrase now, you know, the view from 30,000 feet. She was yes. like this elevated, almost celestial being mm. above mm. the day-to-day insanity, sometimes a lot more recently, of, of, of ordinary politics. Yeah, I mean whether another whether another individual could have filled that role is is a, is an open question. I, I I suspect not to the same degree as this uh, late monarch. Well, listen to that speech when she was fourteen. Yeah, that's yeah. why I wanted to play that because again, the voice, you know, like the camera, the voice never lies. There is yeah. an incredibly self-assured person there that knows her mission. Yeah, she must have been helped by somebody to to craft that. Oh, uh, well, yeah, obviously, you know, there's a million speech, right? You could see it in that photograph. It's lying there on the table with the two mics. So, yeah, she was reading, but she didn't recite it like she was reading. She recited no. it like it was from felt, the heart. Yeah, she felt it. And I think that's that, uh, that was a hallmark. Whenever she made statements on the radio, on the television and so on, it... it uh, seemed to everybody who was uh, listening to these things that there were, there were genuine messages from the heart of an individual. 
Okay, now you said a moment ago, sorry to interrupt, but you said a moment ago that you never actually met the queen or interacted with her. However, your item number three has a newspaper cartoon called Chandra and the Queen. What's that about? (laughs) Yeah, well, well, at the the start of this year, on January the 1st of this uh, 2022, I was uh, listed in the Queen's birthday honors list as uh, an MBE, not a very high, not an attitude or anything, but it's a medal, set of medals that the Queen is supposed to to pin on me, or either the Queen or one of the senior royals was supposed to do that. That hasn't happened yet, but I'm supposed to be an MBE. So what, the, the, what the heck is an MBE? Member of the British Empire. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Uh, so uh, it might fall to the King to do this? Yeah, it might fall to the King or, or to one of the King's sons, depending on who is available at the time. So I think a date has been fixed in February of next year for me to attend a ceremony uh, along with lots of others, uh, others, I guess, to to get this medal. But the, the cartoon was funny because it was uh, uh, a magazine called, uh, what's it called, Private Eye, a very sort of sarcastic, cynical magazine that publishes uh, a critical things about government and about a lot of other people. And so they, they printed it. The, the cartoonist thought that it was Oh, funny. this is hysterical. On the left side, yeah. it's, got a, it's got a flat screen TV and there's a newscaster yeah. and it says, Professor Chandra Wickramasinghe is to receive an MBE, member of the yeah. British Empire. And, and then the on, Say again? And the shaking in horror. And then on the right, um, there's obviously a, a, a very stylized sketch of the Queen and yes. she's saying... Oh my God! I'm going to meet Chandra Wickramasinghe. <laughs> I thought that was funny. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. Item number four or four A. There's a letter there that is ostensibly from your wife, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. And it has a different date. It says that the the king and queen, the or the queen and the prince visited in April of '54, not '57. Oh yeah, it's fifty. Nineteen fifty-four. Which, uh-huh. have been, which would have been a year after the coronation as part of that yeah, world tour. I think it's that, yeah. I, I, I was wrong when I said it was 57. I mean, she had a state visit probably quite soon after the coronation. Yeah, about anyway, a year, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, do you want to read the letter or do you want me to? You read the letter. I don't okay. have it in front of me. Okay, it says, I was born in Ceylon in the dying days of the British Empire, seven years before the start of the second Elizabethan era. I was nine when Queen and Prince Philip made a state visit in April 1954. My abiding memory is of a young and beautiful queen riding in an open limousine and passing within yards of the front veranda of my house on Gailey Road, Colombo. The event was preceded by weeks of feverish excitement, which included the erection of a platform for viewing the event with family and friends. When the moment finally came, the monarch's cavalcade passed by with Her Majesty making her gracious, gentle wave a precious image that is etched in my memory. Not bad. Okay, now there's a second letter. So let me click on that. Yeah, that's my letter that they also published uh, in the Times. Right. Okay. Sirs. The first Elizabethan era saw the launching of the British East India Company 
that led in turn to the spread of British rule and of British empire across much of the globe. The second Elizabethan era began with the process of decolonization, replacing empire with commonwealth, and this process still continues. However, what will stand out in the long annals of history as perhaps the greatest legacy of the second Elizabethan era will be the enormous progress in science leading to the conquest of space. Human space travel, landings on the moon and planets, the operation of space telescopes that have the capacity to probe the very beginnings of life in the cosmos, these will be the timeless achievements that will mark out the era that has just passed. Very good. Very good. Yeah, indeed. I think that is true. I think that that is going to be, I mean, her, her personality and what she did in terms of her own uh, contact with the people around the world, millions and millions of people would be the important legacy. But I think the, the abstract legacy would be that she presided over a period of history that is really quite amazing in terms of uh, uh, exploration, not of the globe, but of the universe. Hmm. Apropos of what I was asking Steve Bassett. I, 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 tell, you, I tell you the story. You know, in the 1970, uh, late 1960s, the British government were trying to collaborate with the Australians in um, uh, constructing a telescope called the Anglo-Australian Telescope. And that was, at the time, the, the biggest telescope that can do infrared astronomy, and it was a very powerful um, astronomical venture and the parliament in Britain was prevaricating as to whether they should pay large sums of money and get uh, into perhaps into debt in terms of uh, supporting this venture so uh, what happened was not the queen but the pr- prime minister uh, essentially had discussions with the queen and then had t- tele- made a telephone call to Fred Hoyle to ask him what he thought of the Anglo-Australian telescope venture and whether Britain should uh, go 50%, uh, contribute 50% to the cost of the venture. And so Fred said, yes, certainly, this would be the turning point mm. in astronomy for, for decades. Excellent. So okay, we'll hold it there. We're at the top of the hour. We have a hard break. My guest this morning is Dr. Chandrawick Singh. Bob Harrison is with us, Ruggiero Cayley, and Georgia Lambert who we're all going to be coming back to. We've got another hour to go. This, again, is the uh, bagpipes, the Lord Lovitz lament of the queen, the departed queen, Elizabeth II, the end of the second Elizabethan reign. We shall return. other side of midnight.com talk radio with pictures on demand liberate your hyperdimensional time scale 
and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. $0.08 cents an episode. Two and a half cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. It is now uh, Monday morning, the 19th of September, in uh, a few hours. The final farewell to the British people and to the world will take place in Westminster Abbey as the Queen lies in state for a state funeral to be attended by something like 2,000 people, heads of state, VIPs from all over the world. Uh, My guest this morning is Dr. Chandrawick Ramasinghe, Georgia Lambert. Bob Harrison, and Rogero Kahlo. I don't know whether Andrew Curry, who is also a member of the Commonwealth there in Canada, has been able to join us as yet. But I do want to go back to you, Chandra, because uh, one of the things you told me, Charles made that trek by air from England to Sri Lanka to award on behalf of the Queen the uh, knighthood that Arthur so richly deserved. Um, that they spent quite a bit of time in conversation afterwards talking about extraterrestrial life. Can you yeah. can you expand on that? Yeah, uh, this is what Arthur C. Clarke t- tells uh, told me on several occasions that Prince Charles was really excited about the ideas that uh, Arthur C. Arthur Clarke was expounding in books and science fiction and so on. And particularly, he had, he had an obs- Arthur had an obsession at the time about trees on Mars and uh, great big uh, sort of octopuses in the, in the oceans of Europa, right? Right. And, and he apparently talked about all this with, uh, with uh, uh, Prince Charles and now King Charles III. And he was extremely, extremely interested, was Arthur's... Uh, comment to me about all of this and he listened with great interest to Arthur's uh, exposition of, of his uh, view of the uh, of aliens uh, in our, our midst. So uh, he was appraised, Arthur C. Clarke certainly, that uh, the, the reality of alien life has to be taken seriously. Now, uh, Charles has had a lot of uh, flack from the um, establishment about how he expressed expressed his views on matters like uh, climate, climate change and uh, sort of green farming and so on, uh, but he hasn't expressed in public any views on alien life. So whether he uh, thinks that is really under the um, the radar and should be kept under the radar, I don't know. But this, this is Arthur's uh, uh, story that he. 
uh, told me with great relish that uh, that he was uh, so he discussed these matters with the the now King Charles III. Well, you know, over here many years ago, we had a, um, a some kind of a financial company called E.F. Hutton, and they did a series of commercials, and they've had people in restaurants or on trains or planes or libraries, and two guys would be talking, and they'd be, you know, they'd somehow mention that they represented E.F. Hutton or that E.F. Hutton had said something, and the, and the camera would show everybody's pausing and leaning in and listening, and then mm-hmm. the announcer would say, when E.F. Hutton speaks, everybody listens. It was a very effective campaign. The same is true of Arthur. You could not have grown up in England, and if you were at all interested in the sciences, which, of course, we know Charles is, you could yeah. not know that Arthur C. Clarke was the guy to talk to. And if you had him to your unfettered access for hours all by yeah. yourself, and you'd flown all the way from England to Sri Lanka to award him his knighthood, yeah, you, you, yeah. Couldn't, you could not help but pay attention to what he said and of course, he said all the right things. So I'm yeah, predicating yeah. part of my forecast that Charles is going to take a visible leading role in this disclosure process based in essence on what our mutual friend Arthur reported about what happened when he got Charles alone. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the fact that he flew all the way, I mean, in, in those days, and, and now, even now, it's a t- it's a tedious flight. It's a, t- t- ten hour flight to from England to to Ceylon or to Colombo. So to undertake that flight, just just to to put a, uh, a golden sword over his head and say, "Rise, Arthur C. Clarke," uh, <laughs> it doesn't make a lot of sense unless he desired. Unless you wanted to, to have a conversation about yeah, the yeah. cool stuff, particularly if your father, you know, the Duke. Yes was so yes. deeply into, I mean, the, 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 the Philip bought every damn book on UFOs apparently yes. ever published. Yes. So, yes. And, and they were very close. Philip and Charles were very close. So how could you yes. not have grown up under that tutelage? And when you got a chance to talk to a guy who really knew his onions, as my yes. grandmother yes. used to say, how yes. could you yes. not take the opportunity? I think that it's all kind of bodes very well for, the forecast that I've very uh, uh, been out there making. Yeah, I hope so. I hope that. Uh, I, yes, I Georgia? Hope yeah, can I add something? By all means. Here? I think Charles is clued into a lot more than people realize. I remember uh, many years ago hearing a story of him uh, getting hurt in a polo accident, his elbow or something. And there was a big fluff because he was caught uh, making a secret pilgrimage to Glastonbury's Chalice Well to take the healing waters there. And of course, oh my! That's a that's a, an area all wrapped up in uh, esoterica, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, he's reputed to be talking, been talking to his plants and so on, and the idea that plants have consciousness and and have. Uh, uh, a response that they can have to human behavior in their vicinity. I think these, these are sort of ideas that are not entirely bizarre, isn't it? There's uh, some. Yeah, let me let me go back to Ruggiero and Bob. Uh, Ruggiero, what do you think of this cockamamie idea? 
plants having consciousness? Or? No, 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 no. The idea that Charles will somehow play a key role in this unfolding disclosure process that Bassett and I spent the first hour talking about. Well, um, I just went online and I looked at uh, what is the symbolism behind uh, the crown jewels. Yeah. And uh, there's a state because it's the Auburn septum, isn't it? Um, And I think the Queen's role was to provide a facility for balance. If we probably didn't have the monarchy in our country, I think we'd just be in a place of chaos. But one of the statements, it says, the monarch is God's representative on earth. Um, And Well, this is that concept of divine right of kings. What gives a family, hereditary family, the right to rule millions of other people the only thing that's ever been invoked going all the way back to Sumer is kingship is lowered from the gods or God. That's their authority. That's why I've got that, that statement there because your, your whole model, Richard, is we haven't, we haven't come from where we think we have. Nope. So, so the, the royal family would be like the figurehead to... Well, retain. think about this. And I, I, I really wish, to, you know, Steve, would, Steve doesn't want to stick around for any of this stuff because... He's so worried about politically being tainted in Washington. But when you look at the history of kingship, of monarchy, of hereditary rulers over millions of other people, of an in crowd and an out crowd, and then you look at the larger picture of trying to reconstruct our own history, it's really not that far afield to think that maybe Elizabeth and the crown and Charles and members of the family, regardless of where they came from, because the Tudor family ultimately derives from royal families in Germany, right? But there was some point where all the royals interbred all over the world, right, Chandra? Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think uh, the intellectual objection to monarchy is that... uh, it's uh, this divine right to rule, which is sort of not uh, not regarded as being remotely scientific. It's not regarded as being valid in a in a, a factual sense. So the the only huge question mark against uh, inherited monarchies uh, is this sort of ancient connection that you mentioned. The, divine right to rule that goes back thousands of years. So if I have been laying out this model that ETs, a lot of them are not aliens. They're in fact related genetically to Homo sapiens, their family. Yeah. It's not much of a, of a further idea that maybe the royal family is more intimately related at a genetic level to whoever rules this spiral arm of the galaxy or are monarchies the rule as opposed to the exception? How do you organize? What kind of government do you invoke to rule a collection of star systems, even if you have faster than light travel that takes only a few days to go, you know, 20,000 light years, et cetera. In other words, no one that I know of in the UFO community has seriously grappled with the idea what kind of government is out there and how many Mm. different variations can there be? And then if Mm. you introduce the idea of family, would Mm. not the most appropriate emissaries from this small planet backward 
primitive, definitely not at, at the upper level of any civilized society, what way would be the entry point back into a true galactic federation than maybe by means of the royal family and the monarchy of Britain? Well, I think if you equate uh, God to alien life, then I think what you're saying is has some... Well, remember some... Arthur's third law. Any yeah, okay. sufficiently advanced technology is yes. indistinguishable from magic, which is another name for God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you've got to, you got to reinterpret the word God. Yes. Uh, in, in, in a modern context, in a, in a space age context. And then you have uh, a connection that, as you said, that you're gonna, you can postulate that there's a connection between, between the uh, divine right to rule and the descent of these individuals from some alien ancestry. But you keep using the word alien. If my model is correct, they're all related. It's, remember Neil Armstrong. Nobody yes. could figure out what Neil Armstrong meant when he said, as he went down that ladder, that's yeah. one giant step for man, mm. one giant leap for mankind. Yeah. The yeah. way I interpret it is that the man was him representing Homo sapiens on Earth. Yeah. Mankind was all our other other genetically related relatives all over the damn galaxy and beyond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that will be the most uh, general interpretation of that statement, isn't it? The most liberal. Yeah, yeah. And everybody's tried over the oh, he he really said the a. You just can't hear it. No, it's not there. I heard it live. <laughs> at CBS that night, and I've heard okay. it a million times, there's no A, there's no space. There's, they, they've done you know, sound analyses. There's no space. It was, well, that's one small step for man, meaning mm. us here. Mm. Mankind is different, elevated, and it's like everybody out there is happy that we're about to rejoin the larger community of family. Mm. That's how mm. I interpreted that statement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I want to throw this now to Bob. Then I want to go back to Georgia. Bob, what are your thoughts on this? Well, uh, you know, we're thinking of disclosure, aren't we? Of, uh, let's say, global disclosure of being something done by government. So we we tend to think that the president of the United States would be the the person who would announce things because well, that's America, what Bassett thinks. Yes, no. because that's because America seems to have had, in a cargo cult type of way, seems to have had the uh, the most interaction with extraterrestrials. Well, but Bassa basically said we have more yeah. nuclear weapons than Britain, so they're going to follow, yeah. which I think is a little parochial. Well, well, there's also there's also the fact the, the idea that you know, you might when I said cargo cult that America seems to be. If you believe all the stories, then America seems to be the one who uh, seems to have the, all these covered uh, spacecraft, which suggests something like this going on, that the that extraterrestrials have uh, decided that, uh, that America will get the, the technology kind of thing in a plausible denial type. But I want to go back to the point I was going to make. That assumes that we get to choose 
disclosure. Maybe if it was the extraterrestrials that control uh, the disclosure process, they would choose who who would make the announcement to the world, which would go more with your kind of idea. They might decide uh, who's the most respected person in the world rather than the most powerful. Or who is the most relevant to our real history, which, if I'm right, is intimately related to hereditary rulership, uh, something like a galactic commonwealth or federation as opposed to one government that runs everything from some central location, like in uh, Isaac's, you know, uh, novels. Uh, let me let me turn to, to Georgia. Georgia, you and I had a brief conversation, and I said there are basically only three forms of government that I could conceive of that would be on a galactic scale mirroring what goes on here. One is pure democracy. The other is the limited monarchy. And the other is represented by Putin and others of his ilk, autocracy or, or Hitler, whatever. And then you brought up another set of possibilities. So if you would expand on those, I would be most uh, pleased. <laughs> well, as we were talking about that subject, um, obviously we're thinking of governments that work for humanity's consciousness now as it is today. But what if they are more advanced than we are spiritually and they are telepathically in tune with one another and harmony is the natural result of that interaction without any outward trappings that make it so. Hmm. Chandra? Well, yeah, I think that uh, I I would tend to agree with uh, George here. This is probably the way it is going to pan out. But uh, it's early days yet. Let's wait and see. I think the, the, the disclosure is probably not going to be imminent. Uh, well, I wouldn't have... bet on that. I'm seeing trend curves that we're talking maybe a year at the okay. outside before stunning. <laughs> and and the, one of the reasons I predicate, you know, that prognostication, <clears throat> say that, you know, with a mouthful of marbles, is because of the spacecraft heading for the moon and all the amazing stuff that's waiting to be unfolded on 11 8K color HD cameras on Artemis alone, let alone yeah. the, the, the capstone mission or the, the South Korean mission. When that becomes general knowledge and with social media, I don't see how it cannot be. Yeah, there will, well, if, there will if, have to yeah. be some kind of official response, and that opens mm. the door to well, who built that stuff? And that opens the door to current things flying around and Pentagon offices. And in other words, I think Robert, uh, Bob said something really amazingly uh, acute a few moments ago, which is mm-hmm. this is really like I don't think the cover-up has been under our control. I think mm-hmm. that the disclosure is not under our control. And there's a larger clock, a larger calendar, and there's a timing and I think, Bob, you're right. The timing could be on their terms and their their watch, and that would, to me, in this model, make Prince Charles, now King Charles III, the likely designated representative of a much bigger galactic reality beyond. I'd like to speak to that, if I can. Go, go. 
Um, this is, this is uh, just bear with me for a minute. In, in the West, we have various mystery traditions. We've got the Rosicrucians, we've Kabbalists, we've got the traditions of alchemy. One of the great Western line of the mysteries is called the Matter of Britain. Oh, and really? This comes, yes, and it covers three very specific branches, all under the head of the Matter of Britain. The first are the Merlin Mysteries. Again, we think of the stories of King Arthur. The Merlin Mysteries connect us to our past. They talk about the old traditions of, of understanding ley lines and the old technology carried over from a possible earlier civilization. Uh, the Druid priesthood, all of that earth magic stuff is under the guise of the Merlin Mysteries, which relate to our past connects us with our past. The middle section are the Arthurian mysteries, the founding of Camelot, the idea of the right use of power, might for right rather than might makes right, and the whole idea of the integration of the best knights from all over the world at the round table where it's a community and the idea of building culture. That's where humanity is today, learning the right use of power very slowly and, uh, and learning how to build a, a harmonious community. The future aspect are the grail mysteries, the individual quest for spiritual attainment or adeptship or mastery. And in the past age, the idea was the, the two that actually achieved the grail, Galahad and Percival, uh, achieved the grail and disappeared off the face of the earth. We're now entering the Aquarian Age where the grail, uh, once captured, is poured outward in service to humanity. This is where the Arthurian idea of the once and future king comes from. The once meaning our past, the Atlantean past, and the future spiritual evolution of humanity, we're at the midway point, and the king, the once and future king, is the bridge between the past and the future. And that's one of the reasons why I think Charles would be perfect for this uh, disclosure activity. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I think what you said, what you said sort of in terms of history and uh, history of superstition ideas is very interesting, but the dawn of the Enlightenment that sort of really came in full force in the middle of the 17th century essentially silenced all of that stuff, isn't it? And, and replaced or attempted to replace all of the earlier mysteries of the world with, uh, with rational empirical science. And so the birth of, for instance, the academies like the, National, like the Royal Society uh, in London and like the, uh, the the Paris Academy, the French Academy, and so on. Their, their mission was to use empirical science to to quash all those earlier uh, ideas that were rampant in those days, which included witchcraft and magic in a big way. Yeah, but Sandra, remember, Elizabeth I had John Dee and a whole hmm. occultist hyperdimensional perspective on life, reality, kingship, queenship, yeah. the, all yeah. that. And yeah. I believe, I believe Georgia, that you have a post in Radio with Pictures 
showing Elizabeth II's first prime minister, Winston Churchill, dressed up going undergoing a druidic ceremony. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean it was certainly ceremonial and and um But do we know modern, to what modern, degree? Do we know to exactly. what degree? See? The modern the modern druidic groups are are um uh, very similar to other uh, societies like the Freemasons or the Elks or the Goodfellows or that kind of thing. Um, I have a, in my show notes the picture of a very young Winston Churchill in such a group, the Ancient Order of Druids. And the second one is more interesting. If you click on it, there'll be a, um, a few minutes of a, a video of the young Elizabeth, before she was made queen, being inducted as a bard in a druid ceremony. What? Yes. Oh my uh, God. Click on click on it. It's about two to three minutes long. It's it is at a Welsh Stedford, which is a, a, a spiritual meeting and a, a conclave. And she is dressed in robes, and she's being inducted in this druidic order. In about 2006, she was kicked out of the order because she didn't learn to speak Welsh. Oh my, but her son did. But her son did and took his vows as Prince of Wales in Welsh. How interesting. See, the the way I'm looking at this, guys, is it's wheels within wheels within wheels. Just because we have what appear to be kind of dead-ender societies that don't do anything but get together and have tea and, and very bad chicken doesn't mean I actually spoke at a Masonic Lodge and that's what happened. Um, just because they're at that level doesn't mean it isn't cover for much deeper levels. And for Winston Churchill to have been her prime minister coming right off World War Two, I mean, who could who could have better schooled her in how the world really works? And how to deal with people like Hitler on the one hand and Roosevelt on the other uh, than, than, than Churchill. And if we're playing with Jungian archetypes, uh, again, the idea of the, the kingship or queenship uh, connecting uh, past and future, mm-hmm. moving from the old age of the mysteries to the new age of mysteries, which are science that's just the old mysteries in a new language. Just interject a minute about Scholastic. Yeah, by all means, Ruggiero. So, there's a really good point about um, Charles. It's the learning of Welsh. Because when, when you look at um, the Norse languages, the European language, German root, they're very harsh and staccato. In, in. Whereas Welsh is like a, much more of a, like a singing language. And... Um, through some of the work of yeah there's some kind of interference on your Skype line Ruggiero Sorry. I was going to I'll just get to the point um, looking at language and uh, numbers would be really, really interesting for you to do another show particularly looking at Welsh about why is it so different to the to the languages following one three to four okay is there any numerology, any, any uh, relevance in numbers to the Welsh language? Because the 
Al-Barak, or as far as I understand them, Jewish languages, they, they were all linked with numbers, right? Yes. With it, there might be some kind of uh, hmm. message. That would be a very interesting study, indeed. Okay, we well, are... Welsh, well, Welsh is one of the, the, the main uh, Celtic languages. There's Irish, Gaelic, Scots, Gaelic, Breton, which is part of France, Welsh, and Manx are the five Celtic languages. You know, uh, Richard, uh, let me let me interrupt. With, uh, yeah, actually, let's do it after the break. We're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning, too numerous to mention. We'll get that back to them when we come back. You're on the other side of midnight. This is God Save the Queen, because Queen Elizabeth is no more. Long live the King. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership cost $9.95 a month. 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, Monday morning, here in the land of enchantment. This is the Piper's Lament, the Flowers of the Forest, of the late Queen Elizabeth II, who passed away last week, and there have been 10 days of mourning, culminating with her state funeral, just a couple, three hours from now, in Great Britain. Culminating at 19.5 London time. So, Chandra, you were going to say something. 
Yeah, I was going to say that I, mean, I forgot to mention to the, at the outset, but this is a very important disclosure that was made in 2017. Now, you mentioned already that Winston Churchill was the first prime minister that Queen Elizabeth the first, oh, sorry, second ever appointed in uh, at the beginning of her reign. And Winston Churchill's views on aliens uh, are, are really very interesting. And this is an article that I've got printed out from uh, a BBC website it's with the title, Winston Churchill's Views on Aliens, Revealed in a Lost, lost Essay. And the, and the article goes on to say that newly unearthed essay by Winston Churchill reveals that he was very open to the possibility of life on other planets. In 1939, uh, the year of the World War broke out, Churchill penned a popular science article in which he stated the likelihood of extraterrestrial life. The 11-page type draft, probably intended for a newspaper, was updated in the 1950s, but never published. In the 1980s, the essay was passed to a U.S. museum, where it sat until its rediscovery last year, that's in 2017. Uh, the document is uncovered in the National Churchill Museum in Fulton, Missouri, by the institution's new director, Timothy Riley. Mr. Riley then passed this document on to an Israeli astrophysicist and author, uh, Mario Livio, who describes the content in the latest issue of Nature. So this is what, and he goes on to say that Churchill was a great uh, fan of extraterrestrial life, and it is well known that he was the first prime minister who was constantly in touch with uh, not only, uh, yeah, with astronomers and scientists such as Sir Bernard Lovell, a pioneer, the pioneer of radio astronomy. And you've got to remember that radio astronomy was also being used to search for extraterrestrial signal. So mm. he was in touch with Bernard Lovell, and he has expressly uh, stated in his essay that uh, the extraterrestrial life is uh, in our midst is, is a very likely... So the Queen, and by metonymy, you know, King Charles, mm. who, of course, she tutored as well as, uh, you know, um, uh, her sister and, and uh, you know, the the uh, uh, I guess Edward, um, mm. they were they were immersed in this. Uh, Georgia, talk a little bit about how Churchill during the war led literally a hyperdimensional effort to counter the Nazis, to counter Hitler with occult, hyperdimensional, so-called paranormal forces. Well, of course, it was well known that Hitler was even before the war, seeking all over the world for esoteric artifacts and uh, uh, trying to employ very, very, very dark esoteric principles in some of his ceremonies and, and all, all kinds of just really bizarre stuff. And of course, in the United States and in Britain, in order to figure out what Hitler was going to be up to, they had to hire their own astrologers and uh, and people in the know. I think uh, uh, didn't um, one of our, our uh, other side of midnight guests write a book on Aleister Crowley uh, being a secret agent for oh yes uh, yes for, oh. for the British who was that um, who was that uh, was it Spence no it wasn't Spence no or was no. It? Uh, anyway, it, 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 it might have been Dr. Spence, yes. 
Might yeah, I think so. Yeah. Any, anyway, uh, you know, there's a, there's a tradition in, in Britain that um, there's only been three times where the whole esoteric community all over Britain, from the Freemasons to the local little Wiccan covens and everything in between, have all gotten together for what they call a great working. The first was during Elizabeth the first's time to repel, of course, the Spanish Armada. 1588. Uh, that was important for a lot of different reasons because it was found that the Armada were carrying inquisitors and torture equipment to set up in Britain. And had that happened, Britain, Britain would have remained Catholic and all of the experiments uh, under Francis Bacon could never have been worked out in the New World. So that was huge. Including uh, the, the ultimate founding of the United States of America, the exactly. New Atlantis, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. So um, the second time, uh, in that first time with, with Queen Elizabeth, there were many important players, Sir Francis Drake being one of them. And uh, it was said that he led one of the, the big esoteric uh, conclaves at the time. The second time this was supposed to have taken place uh, was to repel uh, Napoleon. And the third time was the repelling of Hitler. Ah. And, and, and as Hitler was using all kinds of dark magical means to try to bring back the old gods, what he didn't realize is that when you bring up something, you also activate its polarity. Uh -huh. and, the, and the polarity of the archetypes in England go back to King Arthur, and they were a lot older and more stable How interesting. than Germanic ones. And so you have mystics like Dion Fortune uh, who stayed in London during the Blitz with her meditating groups, you had people like Wellesley Tudorpole who bought the Chalice Well land and kept it from being a brewery. He was a soldier in World War One and was responsible for saving the family of the founder of the Baha'i faith. Uh -huh. And he was quite the mystic. And... Um, so you had Dion Fortune and Wellesley Tudorpole, who was a friend of Churchill's, and Wellesley Tudorpole was responsible for the uh, silent minute during World War II that Churchill introduced. And uh, every night at 9 o'clock when Big Ben rang out, there was this silent minute of everybody, you know, focusing on oh, yeah. safety and, you know, uh, the uh, the winning side. Again, so I, there, I I there I, was I a lot of there was a lot of esoteric stuff going on on both sides, dark and light, during that particular war, which made that war on many levels a lot different than any war since. Uh, yeah, because it was being fought at several different realms simultaneously, and what impresses me, guys, is that Elizabeth and Charles and the other members of the core family, Philip, they grew up with all of this swirling around them. Listened again to Elizabeth at 14, that centered presence, that knowing that you can't teach, that has to come from some other level. Okay, I want to go to Ruggiero because 
The other night, I finally broke down, and I took about two and a half hours out, and I watched a, a new movie called Moonfall. Uh, one of the reasons was that Keith had told me that someone had told him that they mentioned my work and the moon stuff in the movie somewhere. So, of course, I'm you know looking and looking and looking. And basically a really silly movie with a dumb plot, but it's, it's, it kind of follows Roddenberry's rule in that if you dismiss the plot and you just look at the moon that they lay out with extraordinary, very expensive, high-end, incredibly realistic computer graphics, it is a whole different level of communicating the moon, the Krell-like moon that I've been talking about on this show now for several weeks. So, Ruggiero, what is it you noticed about Moonfall that is relevant to tonight's discussion? Highlighting, uh, you have to speak up a bit. It's highlighting a former history of, uh, of humanity. Ah. A lineage, a lineage, which is relevant to tonight, right? Yes. And, uh, any other listeners haven't listened, haven't seen the movie, go and watch it. It's a little bit Hollywood-tastic, <laughs> <Yes. laughs> to, to say the least. Um, but, uh, you know, it gets the message across, across quite nicely. And I think there's a little bit of a, like a spiritual connotation to it. Um, what points would you like to pick on, Richard? Because it's such a big film. Um, did you see any maps in there? Any, any, anything that's relevant to, to your model? Well, I need to go and look at it again because I was, you know, I was pay- paying attention to see, are they going to mention our work? Because there actually, many years ago, there was a novel written by Alan Steele that I happened to stop at a roadside rest uh, coming back from Tennessee. This is decades ago. And I'm at the magazine rack looking for something to read while I'm having a, you know, kind of a late, late dinner in one of these diners. And there's a book about Sidonia. And I open it up and there is my name in novel form at the beginning of my Sidonia investigation. So when someone said to Keith that Hoagland's mentioned in this movie, uh, even though it's got a silly plot, obviously it was irresistible and I can report tonight I found no reference to me in the movie, but I did see stunning references to all the incredibly high technology and reworking of the moon and it being placed in orbit artificially, et cetera, et cetera, with, with accompanying CGI, which really... And the, and the incredible uh, and the age of humanity. Yes, yes, yes. The fact that the, humanity... The idea that we... Uh, is. We were seeded. The Earth was a seeding of a, a humanity that started, uh, what was it in the film? I think he said about four billion years yes, ago. Yes, billions and billions of years. Now, again, this completely conforms to what I have termed Roddenberry's rule from my friend Gene Roddenberry, who did you guys all know what. Many years ago, when I first laid out on his office floor all the photographs from NASA, high-resolution big 16 by 20 prints of uh, Sidonia and the face and the pyramids and all that. At the end of a very long day and a very a lot of talking that I did, he's behind his desk, he leans back, staples his fingers, and he looked at me right in the eye, and he gave me one of the most important lessons in media that anybody has ever given me. He said, but Dick, if this was real, it would be on television. 
And that's when I realized that the reason we see all these extraordinary uh, portrayals of all the stuff we talk about on this show and that we've done research on and other writers and researchers and all that is because until it appears in major media, even the in crowd, even those people that get the briefings that have the uh, documents with top secret and compartmentalized written all over them in orange and red and whatever, like what's going on at Mar-a-Lago, even those people won't believe it until they see it on a screen. And to me, that's the quintessence of where we are tonight. All this disclosure discussion will mean nothing until ordinary people see it on television. And who was that in the background? Yeah, right. Um, I just want to mention, I do think that they were making reference to your... on, on, on like a subconscious level, I, I think someone must have been following. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. So, you know, props to you. Plus, from an artist standpoint, it was almost like a remake of Mission to Mars, particularly when they, you know... Um, oh, yeah, when the they end. go inside the face. That's right. It was like, it was almost like a carbon copy, you know, with the same message and the same kind of like... Well, see, uh, there's a much more lineal connection there because Bruce De Palma was the brother of Brian De Palma, who was the director of Mission to Mars. And Bruce De Palma and I were very close on the physics, on Sidonia, on what's... In other words, there was a direct connection between the brother of the director and the, and the Mission to Mars movie with all of the extravaganzas of Inside the Face and all that. There's a much less connective tissue that I can trace between our work and Moonfall except it's a hell of a ride and just for the spectacle go watch it or you know tune in when it comes to to cable i mean in mission to mars you um they mentioned it's for 19.5 7:30 p.m they change it on the clock don't they yeah 19.47 and it's on a digital watch on the astronaut who's prepping the vehicle to leave and then when they did the recut they cut that scene out they actually went back and edited out that scene that De Palma had put in. So you literally see on the screen when they do a close-up of the wristwatch, which is digital, 19.47, which is the key hyperdimensional latitude of the physics. In the moon, only bit that, the bit about physics which jumped out to me, and that's you and Chandra's. They started talking about the gravity waves. Yeah, of course. See, I have to go back and see it again, you know, yeah. and again, Definitely and again. So. Yeah, there's a lot going on there, a lot to take in. Well, the other problem is I'm really distracted by Halle Berry. <clears throat> <I'm>... <laughs> I mean, come on. Who wouldn't be? <laughs> okay, we've got a few minutes till the end. Anybody have things they want to say desperately that they haven't had time to say? Chandra? No, except then. I, I hope that the, the the reign of King Charles III would lead to disclosure in a way that hasn't happened for the past uh, 50 years or so, because there's so much is, uh, has turned up in terms of evidence, and it's not it's not accessible to us, and it's been uh, essentially submerged in politics and in, in people who are really wanting to hide things. So if it's uh, Remotely possible that the new uh, era would mark a, 
a change in this attitude. It would be it would be great for science. Mm. And for a whole bunch of other stuff. Ruggiero, yeah. what, what do you think? Wait a minute, you're very low. I wish King Charles the best of luck. Um, I think he's gonna make it fantastic. Yeah, your connection is really gone. What about now? Can you no, hear me now? No, it's it's very muddy. But we definitely get the sentiment and I wanna thank you for your contributions. Robert, what do you think? Uh just going to say I've still got a copy of that Sidonian novel first. You do? Yes, I I bought it years before I came across um, it's at the fourth fourth uh, version of uh, Monuments and Mars. Yes, I've still got it. The thing that I was, uh, you know, I think they killed me off, the the steel killed me off in the first five or six pages, I think. Um, But the thing that was most disappointing is that the whole plot of Sidonia turned into a kind of a horror story as opposed to anything meaningful or interesting or edifying or a real probing of what it meant for humanity to go to Mars and find Ray Bradbury you know, we've met we've met ourselves, and we're the Martians. That kind of thing. Hmm. Well, but, well, the, the basic thing about the plot was that um, the uh, DNM pyramid and the face on Mars were uh, self-serving. Uh, that it was a str- it was all down to a stranded uh, alien spaceship. Uh, yeah, it, it didn't probe the depth. It was supposed. So they were just trying to attract us to get hold of necessary materials to be able to uh, carry on their way. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, well, the the real plot and the real story of Sidonia and all the rest of the stuff that's out there has, hasn't been touched. So it's a wide open, fertile field. Uh, George, we got about uh, nine minutes. What do you what do you want to close with? Well, I'd like to say that. Uh, the mystery traditions, East and West, and science may be starting the climb at different places on the base of the mountain. But as they get closer to the top, which is the truth, they also get closer to one another. And we're seeing emergence of science and what used to be called magic. I think that King Charles archetypally is set up to be a bridge between past and future, and we'll see if he fulfills that. Chandra, do you know, because I've, I've, I've read a lot of commentary in the last few days, obviously, about uh, the kind of reign that we can expect from Charles. Uh, Queen Elizabeth scrupulously stayed out of politics, out of detailed, you know, ground-level policies, etc. That's one of the reasons why she was loved by both, you know, sides as opposed to over here where, you know, people are hated for taking particular stands if, if they're at all political. Do you believe, and this I, I've seen this, but I don't know this for a fact, is there any legal prohibition for Charles to not continue his almost one-man crusade uh, in favor of the planet, environment, climate change, all those mega big issues which will determine the fate ultimately of all of us. I don't believe that there's any legal prohibition, but 
I, I for one cannot think that he would stop thinking about these matters and even pronouncing on these matters. But whether the the governments of the day t- take them on as serious uh, proposals or act on them, that's another matter. I think they're not obliged to act on anything that, uh, that, that the king says, which comes essentially from out of the, the, the democratic system. So, so I think I think we're not going to uh, have much power that is. Uh, but see, this is where I think I think all of the readers of the letter of the law are missing something huge. Because if we've established one thing tonight, I think it's that Elizabeth's power came not from her legal position, but from her ethical and moral and spiritual position, her higher level overlay of the entire empire monarchy and ultimately the the, the commonwealth. Given, yeah. given that global issues are by their nature humanity and not the purview of one nation or one people, I would think if he's not legally forbidden, and I, I don't remember, I, I haven't had time to really look, but I don't see where that is in anything that I've seen so far, for him not to continue using this extraordinary voice, this platform, to vocalize issues of concern to all humanity and lead humanity in an appropriate direction to take ground-level political action to remedy several of these mega problems, extraterrestrial connection being in that litany, I just think would be for him to miss a huge opportunity that I don't think he wants to miss. The, the, yeah. the other the constitutional thing in this is that if, uh, if UFOs, extraterrestrials, you know, this whole disclosure thing became a big thing for our government, uh, Charles has to be consulted. You know, his, own, yeah. his only powers over the prime minister are that uh, he must be consulted and he must be allowed to advise and warn the, the, the Prime Minister. So he would eventually be in the know. If he's yeah. not already in the know. Yes, Chandra, mm. go ahead. Yeah, I, th- I, mean, I, th- I think there, there, is, uh, there could not be any legal prohibition to his expressing his views. Uh, the, the big question is whether those views would be uh, acted upon uh, if they go counter to the uh, to the established position that the the parliament and the, the the democratic system has taken at that particular moment in time so i think we've got a, a potential conflict between an individual who might have the wisdom who might have the information that he wants to transmit to the the bigger uh, populace but uh, the uh, the but, but isn't this Gentlemen, isn't this the epitome, and ladies, don't forget Georgia, isn't this the epitome of what they've been talking now uh, about uh, Elizabeth for the last you know, couple of weeks, the idea of soft power, that she may not have legal authority to do this, this, or this, but her persona, her vision, her, her stability of continuity, her presence carried the day, and I'm just thinking – yeah, that would continue. Charles' That's... power is not in legality. It's in connecting with people. And if the Gallup poll is right here, 
and something like 66% of people think that we're not alone. I don't know if there's been a poll of the British, you know, uh, citizenry lately, guys, uh, Bob, but I have a feeling it can't be much less given that there have been very interesting, very upfront UFO cases like Rendlesham Forest that have preoccupied the media, and there's a whole different kind of tabloid discussion of this mm. at that level than there is here. Yeah, I don't think I mean, any significantly, it can be significantly different in the UK from the US in this regard. Uh, Which means so, if, he, if, he, if he took the high ground, if he mm. sees the initiative and spoke on behalf of humankind with references to certain things that he knows that are specific, he could literally make his reign on uniting all of humanity in the face of the unknown. Yeah, I mean, that would be a tremendous opportunity that uh, if I was here, I wouldn't miss out on. I think (laughs) it's the one one contribution that would be timeless in terms of his... And then uh, if if that came to pass, there would come a time when I can look at Bassett and say, see, I told you so. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Hey, guys, I yeah. want to thank everyone for a hell of an evening, uh, and I mean that in a very positive way. Dr. Chandrawik Rama Singh, uh, Ruggiero Kahlo, uh, our own Bob Harrison. Not that Ruggiero was part of this for a very long time. Hey, he's got a copy of that novel. I didn't know anybody knew about that except me. And, of course, uh, Georgia Lambert and Keith uh, Morgan and Kintia is somewhere there in the background I want to thank one and all for putting this program together. Uh, your services have been inestimably useful, and we will continue this conversation. And who knows what might happen in the months or years, maybe days ahead, as we used to have over here a radio show called The Shadow, The Shadow Knows. So until next week, same time, same bat channel, remember, the other side of midnight is where it is happening please support us go and contribute whatever you can talk to friends that have money more money than we do and tell them that they want to keep this experiment this investigation on the air chip in a few bucks on our homepage, theothersideofmidnight.com so until next weekend same time remember third star on the left straight on till morning good night everyone